So we stream it to YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn. And is Michael back? Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Is that <laughs> Michael? Welcome back. Yeah. What's up, y'all? What's up, Michael? Michael missed you. Just swinging by to see your beautiful faces. We're doing this. Happy pre-Christmas. Yeah. Good to see you. I like pre-Christmas. Yeah, we all love pre-Christmas. Tyler promised Christmas music tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, we're going to start Christmas music. We're going to have some eggnog while we're with that. Are we going to have like a little Christmas happy hour? Might as well. And well, by the way, eggnog is a bring very, your booze. That's your very American version. The Europeans have glug, by the way. Yeah, and I like coquito, which is a Puerto Rican version, which is so much better. <laughs> I'm I'm very fond of the spiced wine during. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, they're doing a takeaway here in Holland, so yeah. we're still keeping Michael. that Christmas spirit up. I'm amazed that didn't make it over to the states because it's nice. I know. I'm Michael, spiced. Oh, it totally. My husband makes us. spiced wine. Anne Marie's like, yep, we're making it. Oh yeah, we're making. Or was that an it? We've had an ongoing supply between. We just kind of merge Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas with the spiced wine. Brilliant, brilliant. But by the way, they actually are are doing a spiced wine now, like throughout the botanical gardens in Brooklyn. I was, it was the first time I had ever had it, and um, it was definitely super tasty, worth it. Yeah. Basically, we're all just finding the most festive ways we can to get shit faced. (laughs) Pretty much. <laughs> and it, Michael, we love your sense of humor. Anything to sort of get under the mistletoe and just get lit. Literally. What uh, I want to know, I want Messi to jump on stage because I want to know what they are, what kind, how they get wasted in Ethiopia. <laughs> Messi's on stage in Clubhouse. Okay, Messi, you let us know whenever you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. We're streaming. It's happening. We're here. It's live. So the top story. You know, uh, Ethiopian Christmas is, you know, by the way, is is different. You know, it is Coptic Christianity. So it happens on January 7, separately on a new calendar. So there you go. But there is a lot of midwine. Do you know the midwine? No. That it's like kind of uh, um, honey wine. Ooh, visiting somewhere in California tasty. as well. They have it. Yeah, go, that's the mm-hmm. famous one. That sounds tasty. <laughs> Hello. Messy. Messy. It's like honey know? whiskey. Yeah, actually they have it in like in different different versions. They have it darker, which is a bit strong, and mm. then they have it lighter, like wine, honey, kind of yellowish color, which is a bit less alcohol. So there you have it. Yeah, you can get wasted with that. <laughs> My test one, two, three. It works. Okay, are we ready for the stories? We're gonna get into this. Let's do it. Let's go. The top yes, let's do this, Tyler. I'm waiting. This is the most boring first story I think I've ever seen, which is that Mark Andreessen uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, one of the legendary tech investors, has blocked Jack Dorsey on Twitter. So he's <laughs> this is blocking the creator of Twitter on his Can own. Can we get Michael's, Michael's commentary on this, please? Because I think it would be quite interesting. You've got to admire somebody who's got the audacity to block the creator of the app on their app. Uh, <laughs> you know... That's <laughs> like blocking really? the admin in a, in a Facebook group. That, that's the admin of all admins. And you just said, well, screw you. So, it's like blocking Tom on MySpace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
blocking Tom on MySpace. That's really brilliant. So, you know, and it's a little ironic because you know that Jack Dorsey being, you know, the boss of Twitter could, you know, still, the whole point of blocking somebody generally is to prevent them from seeing your tweets, right? Well, uh, Jack can still see your tweets, Mark, Mr. Andreessen. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to stop Jack from seeing your tweets, Mr. Andreessen. So, if, you know, but Mark is notorious for blocking lots of people. And as you can see, when Jack, by the way, when, when Jack got this block from Mark Andreessen, he says, I'm officially banned from Web3, which is, and that was his point, was that Web3 is not this big, uh, libertarian fest that everyone thinks it is that it's actually controlled by VCs and he, hint, hint and he even implied Elon Musk said yeah where is this Web three and Jack said it's somewhere between A and Z implying that Web three is largely in the hands of uh, or disproportionately in the hands of Andreessen Horowitz which is Mark Andreessen so as soon as that happened. Mark Andreessen blocked Jack Dorsey on Twitter. And Jack then responds saying, looks like I'm, un I'm, I'm officially banned from Web3 because Mark Andreessen banned me. And that's your little drama. And as I said, that's the stupidest big headline of that we've had. We do these headlines every day. <laughs> we start with the big ones. We don't pick the order. And this is the stupidest one I've ever seen. It is what it is. This, but it's interesting to see drama and beef between Silicon Valley titans, clash of the titans. It's a it's it's the equivalent of a a toddler closing their eyes to hide from their parents. It is a, it is a bit like that. I'm officially banned from Web three, and then people are responding to Jack, showing that they too have been banned from uh, by Mr. Mark Andreessen. In fact, there's a all kinds of A-listers uh, of, of tech that have been banned or blocked by Mark Andreessen. My friend Jason has been banned or blocked by Mark Andreessen and then refollowed at least three times that I know of. So he, they are not permanent bans by any means. Um, so there it is. So clearly that struck a, a, a sore point with Mark Andreessen about Web3 and Jack calling it out. And that's what a lot of people are responding to Jack saying, well, you hurt his feelings because you exposed that Web3 is actually not what it's all being hyped up to be. And you, you know, you hurt his feelings. And so now you join, you join the, the, the ban list, the block list. Uh, Tyler, I think yes. you can't hear the Twitter space. Oh, can I not? Hold on, hold on. That could be true. Sorry about that. Hold on. Let's, let's fix that. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay, so was there somebody in Twitter space trying to make a comment there? Uh, Evan. Hold on, Evan. Why can't we hear you? Hold on. Give, give us a count to 10, Evan. What's going on? Did you just close Twitter space? It's open. Oh, yeah. Did I jump out? Mike, check Evan. I can't hear you. What's going on there? Yeah. I, I, I see his mic moving. I see him un, unmiking and trying to talk. Yep. For some oh, reason, no. I was bounced out as well, so I'm not trying to be angry. I can hear Alan's voice for and yours as well. BB, I, I can I can figure this out. Thanks. Uh, JT, can you unmic again and count to five? Five. 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 Five.
No, I don't think they can hear you. Oh, I'm muted. JT, can you please uncount, unmic, and count to five? He just did. I know. And now I go again, JT. JT, count to five, please. I just figured out the problem. Give me two seconds. There we go. Oh, Jesus. Man, Twitter, what is wrong with you? JT, please unmic and count to five one more time. Absolutely. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. There we go. We're rolling. Thank you. And Evan, if you could please unmic and make your point just one more time. Evan. Mr. Evan. Tyler, save me. Okay, got you. Were we talking about interoperability in the metaverse yesterday? Yes, we, yes, we were. <laughs> Evan is in Twitter's face. There he goes. He's, un he's unmuted. Go ahead, Evan. Oh, now he's a listener. What the heck? Invite to speak. Looks like they're having some bugs over there in Twitter space. Okay, that's all right. So whenever Evan can be joined as a speaker and make his point again, that's fine. And we'll move on to the next story, which is... Uh, one quick question. Yes. He was trying to make a comment about Twitter on Twitter, right? Yes, perhaps he was. He's restarting because he thinks he did something wrong, which he didn't. It was my fault. I didn't have my little Bluetooth thing turned on. Anyway, Bloomberg is the, the next story. Uh, they have internal documents that show Amazon is struggling to retain Alexa device users in some years between 2018 and 2021. 15 to 25% of new Amazon Alexa users were no longer active after one week. Early holiday season since 2015, Amazon has counted on selling lots of its Alexa voice controlled smart speakers. And let's see what, what's Bloomberg trying to say here. Internal memos detail the company's efforts to keep customers engaged with its Echo smart speakers. And according to I wonder why that is internal to it. Yeah, well, maybe they're maybe they're getting a little data out of you. According to internal data, there have been there have been years when 15 to 25 percent of new Alexa users were no longer active in their second week with the device. Concern about user retention and engagement comes up repeatedly in internal planning documents that Bloomberg viewed the documents which covered 2018 to 2011 detail Amazon's continued ambitions for Alexa, including plans to add more cameras and sensors that would allow devices to recognize different voices or determine which rooms user, users are in during their interaction. They also reveal the roadblocks the company sees to realize these goals. Last year, Amazon internal analysis of the smart speaker market determined it had passed its growth phase and estimated it would expand only 1.2% annually for the next several years. Now, there's a chart which shows the market share of users of each Alexa device who use it each week, according to an internal Amazon document. Devices with a screen is 74%, and Echo is 66%, and Echo Dot is 56%. And so uh, implying that Alexa devices that have a screen get used more. So hence, they want to add more screens to their Alexa devices because you're more likely to use it. Because if it doesn't have a screen, you forget you can talk to it. At least that's been my impression with my little Google Home speakers and that I have a bunch of. I don't really use them. 
because I forget that they're there and that they can do things. And so one of the interesting things about the uh, Apple Watch, at least the new ones, is you can lift your wrist and talk to Siri that way, and it, you it's always there. I don't, there's something weird about voice um, in terms of being one of the next major platforms uh, for people to engage. And th obviously, it's going to continue to get smarter and smarter and better and better and more and more useful and more helpful and practical and chip away at your usage of the of the web but i think the problem is currently app developers have struggled to figure out how to make really useful um sort of voice-based apps work in a very seamless way with your voice and these devices for example you know hey tell me you know, you need some really compelling use cases for other apps that already exist. How would what would Tinder look like in a in a fully voice version? What would other really popular apps? Uh, how would they function in a totally voice way? So it's a struggle, and I think developers are struggling. I think the the platforms themselves, mainly Alexa and Siri and Google Assistant, are struggling to make that really simple, with one notable exception. I think Spotify has, has had more success than anybody because you tell Google or Siri or whatever, hey, Google, play jazz music. And because, for whatever reason, when you do that with Google, it defaults to Spotify, implying that Spotify has figured out a better way to do it than even Google Music has. Because you would assume Google, with Google Assistant, would prefer to send you to Google Music, which is their kind of their attempt to compete with Spotify, and it never really took off. They could do the same with YouTube, though, because YouTube Music is now Google's version of competing with Spotify. They still don't send you to that, even though they probably would like to. But... Um, yeah, I, some kudos to Spotify and its team for figuring out how to make that use case functional. And I do use that quite often as a use case for these voice assistants. But there's got to be other really compelling. I do, and I'm curious what other people's habits are. I do say when I put in my uh, AirPod Pros, I say, hey, Siri, play me the news. And I've set up a shortcut for it to read me NPR's three-minute daily news updates. And then I say, hey, play my workout play playlist. And then it, when I'm at the gym, it plays my workout playlist. Other than that, it's surprising how little voice uh, people are using, considering how much power, it, how much potential power it has. But Tyler, I, I think it's also important to point out, like, if you have a screen or a dot, where are those located? I, I find that people who have uh, the Alexa with the screen, they're typically in their kitchen because they're asking it for recipes. Or it's in like the main hub of the house where a dot would be somewhere else, right? Like in a bedroom or off in, a, in, a, in another room outside of the main hub where if you want to listen to music or if you want to listen to audible it's it's over there you know as opposed to i need a recipe who's at my front door or whatever it is that you're you're looking at so i th i think that that needs to be taken into account also yeah 
Anywho. The most, I think, normally, if you have, when you drive, so you said, uh, hey Siri, where, uh, for example, uh, uh, where I, I like to go, uh, please plot the route. It's something like that. I think it's most uh, used case in the real world because in the in the car you don't you can't uh, touch the screen yourself. So finding the route is. Yeah, Amazon views one of the main barriers as concerns about privacy, sparked by revelations that Amazon workers review snippets of audio to help improve its software along with some high-profile blunders. I don't think that's the case. I'm not I'm not hesitant to use voice because I, I'm concerned about somebody hearing me say, hey, play my workout playlist. That's That thought never enters my mind that I'm worried about. That might prevent people from buying these devices, but I don't think it stops people who have these devices from actually using them. It's just a difficult habit to establish. And once you do establish a, a particular phrase, I do say all the time to Siri, hey, wake me up in 10 minutes. Hey, wake me up in 30 minutes. Even though what I mean is, you know, set an alarm for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And because that works. And I do have that habit. I do that all the time. But it's difficult to get one of those habits working repeatedly, um, although it is getting easier and they know they need to get it working easier. Anyway, so Amazon's, and then that's the issue is Amazon. And I would say all of these uh, platforms, Siri and Google are all not quite getting the adoption that they would might have imagined they would because voice continues to uh, sort of lag behind its oper its uh, full potential. Anyway, so as uh, Tyler, do you think that's going to change when AR glasses? I think it is uh, actually come out because when I'm wearing my Ray-Ban smart glasses, I'm telling Facebook, "Hey, take a picture. Hey, record. Hey, play the next song. Volume up, volume down. Yep. Literally, don't even have to use my hands." Yeah, I think it, I think it totally will change when you're wearing. <laughs> when you're wearing glasses because, and I wonder what Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant might look like in AR or VR. It might actually have some sort of virtual presence that reminds you that you can engage with it. Do you guys remember the movie Tron where there was this little character called Bit, which is this little floating. Oh uh, man, you're old, Tyler. I'm old school. Well, I was the Tron Light Cycles uh, West Coast champion, by the way, this, if, if, just so you know who you're talking to, pal. So yeah. <laughs> I fondly remember Bit, you know, floating around, and it was exactly this. It was a floating object that was a, an, a virtual assistant that you could talk to, and it, it was kind of like the embodied version of the Starship Enterprise, which is kind of Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant, where it's this faceless voice. You know, you're, it's like you're talking to the whole spaceship or something. I like the idea that you're talking to this little floating clippy, you know, to use a Microsoft Office uh, metaphor. Virtually. Yeah, they need and to it, get Alexa and it, in it, more things. I mean, they're trying, but the idea of talking to some black box that sits on your bedside is just not going to work in the long term. It's got to be in a car. It's got to be in your fridge. It's It's got to be like in your glasses, as you said. And, and uh, you know, it's got to get practical for our daily lives and not just that speaker, so to speak. I also, it's going to be extremely, it's going to be extremely cool until free downloadable apps that allow you to hack somebody else's voice and hijack their AR glasses become commodities. 
And I wish Nicholas were on stage because voice hacking is probably, you know, the, the, the very next uh, big hacking opportunity. So Just a quick thing on the augmented reality parts of the interface. Um, one of the things is that whenever you create a new interaction paradigm, whether it be like, you know, hey, look, here's a GUI, you can like, you know, click on things with the mouse or, hey, we've got keyboards now. Or look, we essentially we can do touch screens, but we have to like, you know, paw at the screens so and have, make everything really big icons uh, and make everything so that everything is, even if you're not interacting with it, it can like, you know, swoosh and go scroll. It's you know, very basic zoom in, zoom out, multi-touch. These are very basic interactions that we take for granted. And it took a very large amount of R&D to test it over a very large number of people so that you can have like even small children pick up and use these things. Um, a lot of that work has not yet been done for augmented reality. The virtual reality interaction space is actually a little bit more developed. The augmented reality one, even though in some ways it could be argued it's around, been around for a little bit longer, uh, very basic things like how do you do a menu? How do you do like, you know, you know, a, a scroller or a slider? How do you basically increase something and make it, it uh, you know, go up or go down? Uh, how do you display text? Like these are very, very basic, uh, you know, one-on-one type kinds of things that we have not had a uniform solution that works in all the context required. There's, there's prototypes, lots and lots of prototypes, but they don't quite all work right. HoloLens has one of the more developed uh, infrastructures, uh, especially with the two where you like, you know, you can wave your hands and interact with different things and they have, uh, you know, it's kind of cool actually be able to physically tactile hit the buttons. Um, but we're still not there yet. And the reason why this is really important is that some of those criteria are a little different when you're controlling so much of someone's visual field at once. It's kind of like uh, the keyboard, when they create keyboards for the first time with stuff, they're like, oh, if you do this wrong and require this typing sequence, people might get, you know, like, you know, wrist strain. Or, oh, if we have like the touchscreen work a little bit different like this, you know, people's thumbs might get tired. It's a little different when you're going with the augmented reality stuff, because if you do it slightly wrong, people might puke. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting because the consequences of getting the user interface wrong are actually a little bit different from others. Uh, John, you mentioned earlier about like, uh, uh, you know, like voice hacking. Well, it gets a little crazier than that because, you know, it's one thing when you have your identity stolen. It's another thing when you're wearing some glasses and essentially someone says something that, you know, messes with your visual field and then instantly you're feeling ill and want to basically throw up on everything. Um, that's something that can literally happen within seconds of you hit a button and there's visual stimuli you can get that is guaranteed to get people to hurl. Uh, imagine if, imagine if, imagine if that's the driver of a car with their AR glasses. Ahead. Oh no, that's not gonna happen. No, we're gonna be automated before automated cars before we're at that point. It's it's a. <laughs> I would not trust someone who has a hackable field of vision driving a car. That's, that's know, it really is about the application too, right? Sorry, go ahead. I, I wanted to say, you know, voice so, I just want to say, I don't think it's about the user experience. I think it's about that it, that Alexa still is not solving whatever the consumer problem is. Because if it was solving the problem, there would be consumer adoption. This is Valerie, and I'm done speaking. Um, I wanted to say, voice will just not be enough at some point. We'll have to collect more data points. Since people are using Fitbits and watches, we can combine face, voice, um, E, um, at some point EEG, but for now, uh, current regular data from um, the watches that we use, such as, you know, your specific pulse rate, or, you know, if we combine all the data sets, it will be um, not as easy to hack. So I think we just will keep on adding data points, uh, personalized data points to keep it safe. I just realized another interesting aspect, which is <clears throat> as 
an American working in Europe, living in Asia, the... It's quite a title there. How many continents? Can you throw Antarctica in there too? Yeah, but it's, um, you know, as a native, I probably have the accent that is most recognizable and the first to be trained on these platforms, which is kind of Southern California accent, right? So the, and even I, you know, think it's obviously got a room for improvement and what have you, although it's, it's made incredible improvement over the past decade. But my Swedish friends are usually very low on the list, uh, relatively, of places to get uh, their Swedish accent added to these platforms. And they're used to being first for everything. So it's it's an interesting change there. But there's some researchers that have done comparisons between languages of like how, how accurate the platforms are across languages. And apparently Scottish is unusually difficult to get with the Scottish accent. Uh, and uh, our human targets aren't, aren't even uh, more helpful on that one with things. But where it gets extra tricky is uh, one of the newer techniques is you say, well, if we just have a better language model behind it, then you can kind of, you know, even if the language comes in bad from the voice parser, you can at least get the language part correct. Except the large language models that they're using to compare lots of languages together are trained off of public data sources. And wouldn't you know, one of the larger public data sources for the Scottish language is uh, Wikipedia. Unfortunately, there was actually a little bit of a scandal around this because Scottish Wikipedia apparently was vandalized by uh, a very um, bizarre incident where some like, you know, like some 17 year old kid basically vandalized the entire Scottish Wikipedia. And it was so bad that it just they, they, they don't know how they're going to fix it. And so it's still that way. And all the large language models that were cross language that were trained on this means that for Scottish accents, they're kind of fucked for the near term future until they figure out how to solve that one. <laughs> so um, should we go to the next story? Uh, one little detail is Alexa at Amazon has more than 10,000 people working on Alexa which was a, su a surprisingly large number of people working on that project. Um, but they're suspect they're, again, the main takeaway is they're expecting one point something percent of growth for the years to come. That means it's going to take at that rate, it's going to take 50 years for people for that to really mature into a big platform. And that's a problem because developers generally will embrace it if it's a huge opportunity. And, Strangely, I think it still is. It's just there's quite a bit of friction. Like Spotify is gaining rather handsomely by people who say, hey, Google, play me jazz. And then it says, okay, playing you jazz on Spotify radio. And Why Spotify launched their own hardware platform. They could easily what compete would, with these others. They, I, what I would believe, be interesting? I believe they are, actually. What would be interesting is if the, um, like a dot or what have you, understands that you're in the room and asks you, would you like to listen to music? Would you like to, you know, like, so, so it reminds you that it's there or something. Yeah, I think Normalizing I was, surveillance is a big deal. I was thinking the same, Annette, which is it, these devices can monitor your uh, habits, let's call it, your patterns. And if it notices that you're in a, in a room, in a particular room, especially if it, Google, especially Google and Apple in this case, because they have your phones or your watches and they know your exact location. And Apple with your watch and the accelerometers in your phone can tell if you're sitting or standing or whatever, or if you're at your desk and you're studying, it can probably sort that knowledge out. And if it notices, oh, you're sitting at your desk and when you're sitting at your desk, you like to listen to, you know, whatever, 
it, my, the question is, uh, should it prompt you to, you know, play, would you like me to play this type of music that you normally ask me to play when you're normally working at your desk at this time of day? It's 4 p.m. You're sitting at the place in, in the past. You've often asked for it. Should the app at that point preemptively ask you to do that? The danger is that if you don't want it, uh, you ne- that was a negative experience. And if it does that too many times, you'll throw the thing out of the window. So I think is, is this worth having your personal location data always at uh, risk of being breached? Uh, because essentially having the ability to con- consistently monitor your location, your your emotional mood, your ability to essentially say your open voice comms or anything you talk about. I mean, those 10,000 engineers working on Amazon with stuff, like people already, like in one of those recent studies with things with stuff you were saying, Tyler, earlier, which were listed bits of the data. If 7 10 Americans are already saying we're not happy, essentially, other devices listening to us, uh, uh, like the, the, the acoustic communications, uh, is it wor- going to be worth that so you can have a good mood <laughs> playing music? I mean, I don't think we've come properly accounted for the risk factors on these I things. I mean, it already, it already is. You know, like they, they already are listening to you unless you specifically turn them off. I the think, the, that I think what it comes down to, though, stuff. it gets more dangerous when you start getting into, like, you know, organized political stuff. I think what it comes down to, though, and because, <clears throat> I mean, the real question here, people are purchasing these things. And as Tyler said, within a week, they're like, well, done with that. And I, the question is, why? Why does that happen? Because I remember the very, very, very first time Apple ever demonstrated Siri a girl was running a woman or a man was out on a jog and uh asked siri uh if it was going to rain over that weekend and siri told him yeah you might want to bring an umbrella and i think that the excitement there was that it was the first time anyone had saw it and it was personified it was it was humanized and i think that what's happening is and i think the reason it's used more with a screen Oddly enough, I think the screen kind of it humanizes it a little bit more. And I think that whoever gets to a point of, because notice we keep saying devices. I think the further away we get from the idea of a quote unquote device, which has 10,000 people listening to you and more into a place of humanization where it feels like you're genuinely talking with a, a, a machine that that is more than a machine, less than 10,000 people somewhere in a room and is actually a part of your day-to-day, I don't want to say family, but we have to be comfortable like enough. Assistant, right? Yeah, we have to be comfortable enough that this thing is a part of our lives, almost like a pet in a way. And whoever figures that out and cracks that nut, I think is the one who's really going to, you know, break out. I I girlfriend, by the way, Michael. Oh, good question. I broke up with her a while ago. What ha- what'd she do? Oh, no, that's sad. <laughs> I, 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 she, she, she cried? Did she not cry? Grow, she couldn't grow emotionally. Ah. See, this, you, this brings up an interesting point, which is it might be the case that these technologies will hit a certain tipping point that will then cause everyone to jump in. Because right now, it hasn't reached that point. Exactly. Yeah, so Tyler, Mavwana. All right, can I chip in? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Mavwana is trying to jump in here, and I'm not sure which. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm in Dubai now, and it's uh, I've been traveling. But actually, I think you have a really good point because I have a couple of Alexas in my house, 
And I don't know if you remember yesterday's uh, tech news, Ben mentioned that he was tinkering around with Home Assistant and Smart Home right. um, kind of platforms. Yeah, I think the tipping point is actually related to that because I have three, I bought three Alexas, one in my living room, one in my dining room, one in my bedroom. And I have about 70 connected devices in my house. It's, it's, I, I think it's one of the, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's one of the smartest homes in East Africa, probably not in the world, but I have a ton of devices. Philips Hue, I have a wireless doorbell, but a bunch of stuff. And I still revert to just using a clean interface to turn things on. But Alexa's dramat is quite powerful. And I think one of the things that they're betting on is it being the like hub for your home. Because of course I have a Philips Hue hub, I have a Samsung Smart Things hub, I have a bunch of hubs that, and there's a standard called Zigbee where they're all meant to talk to each other, all these smart devices, and they're all competing on this. You know, of course, Google Home, you know, is also doing this, and so it's serious. When you buy a smart device, you're often looking for that, you know, does it support Alexa, does it support, um, support Siri? And that's causing a lot of FUD and confusion in the market because you don't quite know. And so what I'm thinking here is that um, the adoption will probably come when this is all made a lot easier so that people can buy because i mean this i think the iot smart home is probably more realistic to be adopted like a driver for uh, for alexa and voice assistant um, than say like vr i i think so anyway but the problem is that the market is so confusing uh, to get everything to work together and so i predict that amazon and alexa will start to acquire or release more of their own smart devices because you know, maybe their own light bulbs, maybe their own. I mean, they have that robot thing, right? <laughs> that, that, that you know, and you know, other stuff they're trying to release bigger screens. I actually, because I was listening to this conversation, I realized that the, the the use case we always fall back on is playing music. That's just not. That's just that's just too narrow, right? It needs to be much broader. It needs to be like disarm my security. It needs to be you know boil my kettle. It needs to be a lot more things you can do with your voice that is wow than just play your music. I think people just revert to playing your music and then that's it. But it needs to be a much, much broader. And I think, you know, some of the uh, more, like, once smart homes become more reality, then Alexa and all these voice assistants become more powerful because you can do a lot more in your house than just play music. Brief point, yeah. Amazon's proven willing to be to play dirty whenever they essentially have, like, you know, either acquisitions, you saw what to do with uh, Amazon Basics, etc. They are willing to be hyper-aggressive about things. Uh, I, th I think there's one thing things to consider is that it's going to become socially inappropriate to discuss business matters when there's other smart devices nearby, just because there's no guarantees that data is going to basically stay on your device. Those 10,000 engineers, essentially, you mentioned earlier, Tyler, I, I, I think we might, might be interesting. I'm not actually sure if those 10,000 engineers are all like, you know, programmer engineers, 500 grand in Silicon Valley type kind of things or Seattle, like we think about them. It might be literally they're paying you know, like a thousand engineers to work on something. And then they have like, you know, 10,000 or 9,000, uh, 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 you know, people doing cute quality assurance at, you know, like, you know, three bucks an hour and, and uh, Bangladesh or something. I, th I think it also will, will Amazon step up and actually get behind matter. You know, the protocol that, uh, allegedly is going to unify all of these connected things. And if they really do step up and treat matter as an open interoperable standard, then there is a big you know, opportunity for all these things to talk together and be seamless and plug and play. And I have my doubts, but maybe CES will be some news. Thanks. Tyler, I would love to change this perspective to talking about health assistance instead of talking about the convenience and consumer assistance. Um, so this is Susie from Denmark. I worked uh, with HSEC and, and CareTech. And uh, we have a huge uh, challenge in society, that is, we have a health uh, system that is under pressure. 
we have a lot of free positions in hospitals and in in care and uh, there's nobody to take over so what we need to do is uh in my perspective to use technology to listen in our daily lives and keep an eye on being our assistant, keeping an eye on our health. And of course, that can be Alexa listening to what happens in the space around you. But also, of course, with the uh, Apple Watch and all the other biometric devices that you can add yourself. But I think just because of the uh, pressure on resources in the care and health sector, we will have to need to transform. It's not a question of nice to have. It will be a question of need to have a health assistance that will help us discover Uh, If something is changing in the pattern of our voice, if we are starting to walk in a different way, uh, and of course, if our heart rhythms uh, are changing as well. So I think that the real interesting bit, that is when will the change happen in the market or with the people or patients that they need the uh, digital uh, uh, assistance to take care of uh, prediction of your health and prevention of you getting into a situation where you even need to go to the hospital or, or the big treatments. So that is where I see the, the very interesting um, turning point for when this is going to be widely used. Apple just greenlit Johnson & Johnson um, uh, 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 for their board members with stuff with the former CEO there. Uh, Google just basically bought out the guy that's going to take over the FDA thing. I, I don't think he even quits his, his current job as general counsel for uh, for Google. Uh, Amazon, of course, has basically purchased a number of the the companies that basically ship the pharmaceuticals uh, in a way that can give them a huge footprint for being able to like have the physical infrastructure for this. Every tech company that's launched essentially everything for like the wearables, where they have uh, uh, you know the smart devices that you wear that monitor you know blood pressure and such biometrics. These are basically soft soft, uh, in place. They want to basically move into the space. The problem is that because it's so highly regulated and there's so many existing players, I mean, these are the guys that successfully fought for Obamacare and all these other things. Uh, So it's a very highly regulated space. So what they they have an incentive to do is say, oh, we're doing a thing that's right next to medical, but it's not actually medical because we don't want to have all that regulation because we like to move fast and break things. Uh, So what they'll say is it's a sports device. It's a fitness device. It's a lifestyle app. It's a wellness thing, or they use all this language about all the things around it while basically making all of the sensors and all the things capable of holding that sort of thing. Uh, there's a lack of deficit of trust in consumer data. Uh, HIPAA actually carries jail time. Uh, it's interesting to consider that uh, consumer breaches with things that happen with like a data sector. It's like, oh, we'll give you like, you know, some uh, um, Equifax or like, you'll give you like, you know, three months of data protection. That's nice. If you have a consumer breach of a medical database, executives do go to jail. And I kind of wish those things were expanded to other, other sectors. Um, but each health, each tech company is making massive pushes behind the scenes on the regulatory push. And they're at the point now where they're just throwing money at it. They're just basically hiring some of the core people that basically regulate the entire system or just buying up all the companies involved that are key uh, uh, transition, uh, transaction points where there's a lot of friction between the consumer and uh, the healthcare system. So I uh, expect a lot more stuff in the near future on this because they've been, they've been hungry for the space for a while and they've, they're now starting to get enough uh, heft to do that. It kind of makes sense getting a two-for-one special when they're already paying these lobbying firms fortunes to basically, you know, get access to senators, probably this revolving door jobs afterwards, etc. Um, they say, hey, why not, why not we're at it? Let's look, look at what kind of healthcare stuff we can push in for our, you know, antitrust regulation. And, oh, yeah, as long as we're not competing in that way. So, yeah, expect a lot more of that in the near future. Yeah, if I could, if I could uh, double-click on everything Chris said. Um, I'm I'm pretty deeply involved in in that particular space, and what I I suspect you'll agree with Chris is that 
having these dual pathways of direct to consumer versus making medical claims and therefore owning uh, the obligation for uh, medical regulation um, is is effective and efficient. The problem is how the boundary between those two spaces will be blurred um, by the revolving door and the money uh, of racing things to market. So the, the challenge is uh, not going to be necessarily to eliminate the onerous aspects of getting full approval as a, uh, for medical claims or uh, to abandon anything that has uh, the appearance of, of leading to medical decisions as uh, subjecting that unnecessarily to that onerous process. I think both of those processes need to persist. But the question is, how do you prevent exactly what you're describing from getting a little bit out of hand and causing people to do things that adversely impact their health because their senses, sensors um, and analytics were not up to a medical grade standard? Well, to bring it full circle, uh, you know, the article says that they are having issues um, with re retention rates in terms of their their user base they buy these things and a week later they're they're not using them anymore where and apple has the exact opposite of that which is people put that watch on and then they live their lives by it so susie definitely has a very very strong point here because i know my apple watch is always on and it it, it literally doesn't come off until it tells me until it <laughs> until my watch tells me to take it off and charge it, it doesn't come off. And as soon as my phone tells me that it's completely charged, it goes right back on because I track my health. I've never been healthier in my life than, than the day that I got that, that back way back in series two or three. Um, and every day ever since I, I keep track of everything about my health inside of that, uh, the health apps and, and the amount of data that you are able to collect on your health in there is ridiculous, but that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that it just works. The way that it just, you know, you pull it out of the box, you put it on, and your phone takes care of everything for, for you from that point. It just works, and it immediately starts collecting that data, and it allows you to track whatever you want to track, and it, and it, it all works so smoothly. Um, and, I, and so I think that she, she's got a very, very strong point about the fact that if you can find the thing that people care about, you're not going to have to worry about them not using it after a week of having it. I've bought Apple Watches for literally everyone in my family, my parents, because I want to keep track of their data. I, I, I need to know if anything's wrong with them uh, because I absolutely want to keep them alive as if they're fucking vampires. I don't want them dying ever. So that, that that watch keeps me the, that keeps that data running for me. I got it on all my siblings. I'm the oldest of six and I've got it on my niece and my nephew. And I'm happy to have that data because of the fact that Apple puts so much care and concern into letting us know whether you believe they do or not. I am, you know, they go way out of their way to make sure that we feel like they're not tracking our data. They make sure they go out of their way to make sure that we feel like it's all in an enclave somewhere on a chip and that no one's going to be able to get to it. Whether it's true or not is not the question. The question is, how do you convince your customer to feel that they have that freedom to be able to discuss these very private and important things freely and, and that 
the the devices that you are choosing to have around you are not intrusive. And that's the nut that app uh, that Amazon, uh, unfortunately, according to this article, just simply hasn't cracked. Tyler, uh, yeah. this is David yeah, on David. the clubhouse side. Can I share yeah. a few thoughts? Yeah. And for those who don't know, the people in Twitter might be a little confused. We have two apps running simultaneously with two separate audiences that can hear each other. So you're hearing people in clubhouse because the people in Twitter aren't hogging the mic like the people in clubhouse. No offense, people in clubhouse, but go ahead. Hello, Twitter people. <laughs> I'm over on the clubhouse side and and Tyler's converging the, the world, the universe on this tech news talk. Thank you, Tyler. Um, my So I've got some interesting opinions on this. I was an evangelist at Sun for Java Consumer Technology at kind of the dawn of this stuff in the 90s. And I was very fortunate to to be involved with, with a bunch of really exciting things. And then just over the years, like the Wiimote company, the technology, the, the MEMS motion sensing kind of pioneer and that. So this, you know, getting consumer plat hardware platforms is is really tough so to me it's absolutely no surprise uh what's going on with amazon i actually met the guy that runs the the group he's awesome and they're they're trying to do a really heavy lift but you know they they blew mobile and i say that because people have been speaking to mobile uh you know about how the smartphone or even like the watch like <clears throat> like um the fire phone yeah, well, yeah, but so that's the point, right? It's like, how do we drive people to, to, to buy stuff? Well, we create this little speaker, you know, little speaker, talking speaker. And that's from for, for lots of reasons that have been described. The context isn't there, the, the value, you've got to buy 10 of them to, to go in each room. That's not really, it's, uh, that might be a solution and somebody might try that, but that's not, or, let me restate that. That's not a, a de- massively commercially viable solution. But enough people are, are nerding out where they'll, 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 they'll jump into it. But let me just remind you one of the truisms about, you know, how do these things get actually get traction? And it, I don't know if how many of you remember the, the term killer app, but killer app, we talk a lot about data now, but data means nothing until it's actually, you know, communicated in an app um, it, that conveys massive value in context. And the context and the value is is what gives you a real opportunity. Um, this passive buying and shopping and the music is not is not the compelling thing. That's why the the phone, the smartphone is is great. It's just where every it's the hub. You've probably heard of that as well. It's like it's it's the hub of how you take different services and things to uh, to your life. You know, the fact that it's mobile in your pocket is is everything. It's everything. So. Um, not to say that it's going to stop there, but it is when people talk about everybody walking around with the goggles on their head, I I can tell you right now, it's not ever going to be as big a market as people with the phone um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but yeah, so they, they, it's, it's, it's really for those of us who have watched Google and Amazon try to, to, to uh, keep up with Apple, it's another kind of, yeah, saw that coming a few years ago. Um, but Correct. but on on the medical on the medical versus let's see on the let me restate this on the medical versus wellness. So over at the at, at Movea, we were we were do, we were trying to do a lot of this, and we had to make some real conscious decisions to to not do medical devices because of the heavy lifting. It is holy crap, that's a totally different business, the med tech business versus just wellness, like the Fitbit. When you look at Fitbit, 
It was it's a wellness device, and it was a massive, massive pop cultural explosive success, right? Um, we had a, a company that we had uh, we had partnered with in Europe, though, and they did this. They put some really cool emotion sensing in a in a little tiny device that went on people's wrists in for medical in Europe, though, and it was for range of motion studies. But when we try to partner with some companies um, in the States to do that, that was just, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's much more difficult. So um, in any case, I wanted to, to just share a few few thoughts to just sprinkle a little bit of history in there as I like to do. Yeah, David, I, if I can mention about that, this is David also, if I can add on to what David said, um, one of the things that, that's, because uh, I've got 30 years of medical device development. I was on the founding team of ISTAT back in 1992. And um, and I've done a lot of this regulatory affairs work. When we were launching ISTAT, 16 states didn't even allow nurses to do their own blood work back then because of clear laws and, li- and license laws. So I, I had to lobby different legislatures, about 10 different states, to get to even get license laws approved. And and, also, and I then did a lot with telemedicine as well. One of the things that's changed recently, in the because I and I also added consumer. I've got a product management firm. We I've added consumer technology as about 10 years ago. But one of the things that's changed recently is that, um, like David said, in the United States, people talk about the FDA, but really a lot of the constraints are at the state level, license laws, other issues that um, state level uh, laws and also insurance reimbursements at the state level. So that's why a lot of these new innovations don't go into the U.S. They don't get broad adoption because it's not about uh, it's about getting critical mass in the, the marketplace. Even today. There's without the medical, without the COVID waiver, there's only about 36 states in the country that really have what we would call liberal telemedicine laws, even even in the past couple of years. Recently, changes though in Europe, they were, Europe used to have the MDD, the medical device, um, the, uh, the directive. They shifted to a medical device regulation, and now the Europe, the European market is much closer to the U.S. market. So a lot of the differences between Europe and the U.S. in launching product is not that different. In fact, we've done products in Mexico, Canada, U.S., and the U.K. all within the past two years, and they're very analogous. In fact, many of them really go by an ISO standard, ISO 13485. So, and I would say this, because of these macro changes, when I deal with people from traditional medical device technology companies, Medtronic, Philips, they're scared. Those engineers and those people, the product managers in that space, know that consumers beating them. They can see the writing on the wall. And as hospital to the home, healthcare moves to the home, community-based care, the establishment legacy players, it's going to be like you saw in personal computing and computing with IBM and HP losing market share to the consumer side. That's what's going to happen in the traditional medical technology companies. It's already happening with those players. So, um, Anyway, just want to add that. Thanks. Can I add a different uh, line of argument, please, Tyler? Yeah. Um, just listening to what you, the two Davids have said, um, I, I think it's right that, that, that you know, the devices situation um, is, is clarifying, but the technology is moving so fast in the use of um, uh, whether it's an, uh, an iPhone or an iWatch to actually collect all your data. To me, what is concerning is what happens when the technology, which I think is fabulous, I think it's well needed. I think as a consumer, it's important that I'm able to 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 log and monitor how my health is developing and to look out for symptoms of diabetes or for, for CHD, chronic heart disease and so on. Fine, that's great. But who has oversight 
of how these things are taken on the market, how the data is used, how it is used to create policy, because even without the uh, applications and the various devices, uh, humans actually can create policies that are at arm's length from the consumer, from the patient, and therefore uh, the, 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 the creator of the policy has the authority and power over how that person is treated. So for instance, um, you know, the medical fraternity have always had a sort of upper hand over the patient. And uh, policies, for instance, like one here in the UK that was going around at the end of the um, last century and, and took a while to sort of um, come to some sort of discredit, uh, something called a Liverpool care pathway. And somebody who is on the wrong end of the aid spectrum, it really concerns me that such policies, which really talk about end of life situations and who decides what when I get to a certain age and how um, bad actors, bad agents, bad governments, bad whoever's, even the NHS, can actually decide things for people as you get older to the disadvantage of the older person. And, and, and something about that is very scary when it's then taken into the technological side and apps and AI and that come along. Who is there who will be overseeing all of this, who will have oversight of all the ethical practices, all the policies that are potentially going to come up and how to keep the patient at the forefront of things rather than the money gain from the development of the app, the use of the app and so on and so forth. I hope I hope this makes sense. It's quite a, an involved thing, but there are policies that act negatively against uh, consumers and, uh, and we need to look out for that. Technology is wonderful, but... Thank you. This is Pat, and I'm done. Pat, that's such a, hey, can I, a powerful. Can I add one I'm thing sorry. there? Oh, sorry, David. Just to, to add to what you guys are saying and the distinction between the wellness and the health. The wellness devices are going to start being regulated as well, as David said. Um, second, David, uh, this, this explosion um, of of the consumer end is great. I think it's you know phenomenal. We're getting more more devices out there that people can use, um, but they're still going to end up being regulated. And an example is right now HIPAA is being expanded. And I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of this, but like HIPAA is being expanded to all of those wellness devices. So to Pat's point, this it's not they're not going to be unregulated. And it's a good idea, along with all other tech, to watch the ethics there, to make sure that we're watching the ethics. But something that David also brought up is that regulation of these, and I think both Davids brought this up, regulation of these is a nightmare. It's state level. It, they, it, they conflict. They reinvent the wheel. Um, you've got the, the people who are enforcing regulations, writing regulations, and they're all, you know, also the uh, the the whims of lobbyists and they're um, not necessarily the, you know, knowing everything. So it's, it's, it's every, everybody here has brought up some great points. So if Amazon does all that, then maybe they'll increase that rate. <laughs> Dude, if that, if that Apple watch is that great, I've got two fitness trackers that I never take off. And now you might have to get a third. It really um, is. It is. I love my Apple watch. So my Apple watch actually tells me to breathe. So that's something that I love it for. Um, and Susie, I know that what you're saying is absolutely spot on, um, with John following up, you guys, we could like build something, We've got great minds here. Let's, let's make it happen. Okay. So I'm not sure yeah. if anyone mentioned this because I was, uh, on a call, but whoop has a really great device. Also, I think that's what it's called. Whoop. That's what I wear. I wear a whoop and an aura and I actually prefer the aura over the whoop. I think it's more accurate and also just a better device, but, um, those are the two I have.
But listen to how you guys are talking about these things. You see the excitement in your voices when you talk about these things? No one's running around talking about their fucking dot like that. And that's the issue that Amazon has. You show up, it's my cyclist friends now when we get together at a table, like we're at the... Um... The, the people who don't cycle hate the cycling people because all we do is talk about our rides and the people who cycle who all talk about the same thing hate the aura ring people because we get together and start talking about our aura stats. So, I mean, we really do get excited about it. So Amazon really just needs to figure out the stickiness situation. They have no stickiness. There's no killer thing that people are like, oh shit, my dot does this, yo, or my dot. I asked my dot this at like, nobody's doing that shit. And basically Amazon needs stickiness, I think is what it really comes down to. I know Tyler, you've been trying to say something. Well, a couple of things. I saw Mabwana unmuted and Carl had some brilliant comments in the DMs. So I wanted to give them both a chance. Do you want to try Mabwana? Yeah, I was just going to add, like, I mean, uh, some of the points made about, you know, how great Apple devices are and the privacy right. aspect. I mean, right. back to the, the fact that, uh, you know, you need the cloud to run, an, you know, to run Alexa to turn on your devices at home. That's a risk. I mean, and, you know, like we've had outages, outages even this year, you know, a few, enough that it would scare people, you know, to connect all the devices and you can't get into your house, turn on a light. I mean, I, there was an outage, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And a couple of my security cameras just didn't work. They, they just because they were dependent on AWS. While whilst you know Apple stuff, you know it's all all local, even in your house. And so you kind of as long as your network is up and locally, I think you're fine. You don't have to talk to the cloud to turn on devices. So I think that's going to be one of the barriers that Amazon will have. They'll have to think about maybe uh, downplaying the need for the cloud so much for some of their integrations. Carl. Yeah, cheers, dude. Sorry. Busy stage today. Some really, really good points. Um, kind of spider webbing out on the on the topics here a little bit. But um, back to the original topic, I just want to point out that I think we're mixing up the concept of smart assistance with audio interface. Um, the problem that um, Amazon are having at the moment is getting audio interfaces relevant. Like we're not geared towards that. We're we're visual first. The the visual aspect of our brain and the processing that, that we have um, is far more powerful than our ability to process audio and filter audio as well. A point that I made to Tyler privately was that if you stick somebody, say, in the middle of a like, busy Tokyo area or whatnot with flashing lights and, and buildings and everything else, um, it's, it's interesting, it's engaging. But if, if you're in your home and whatnot and you have four or five dominant sounds, it very quickly gets uncomfortable because how, as, as beings, how we process sound and how we live with sound is very, very different to how we do visually. The other aspect of it is like there's a fundamental limit of information transfer for audio than there is for, um, than there is for visual. Like the reason why that the saying picture says a thousand words has lasted so long is because it's, it's incredibly true. You can gain a much better appreciation of context and information through a visual thing than you can through audio. And there's certain things that you can't do with audio, right? You can't build a menu system. You can't, you can't navigate things easily. Like it works really well for a short burst of a very targeted information or a command. So do X. It's almost like programming. And that'll get me on to my final point. It's like do X, get X, tell me X. And that's kind of where it ends because after that point, then, like, we go back to visual because it just works better. It's it's how almost every species on the planet primarily sort of functions in information gathering. But I don't even think I'm, that that's I'm what sorry, Amazon... I, it's not really true. Um, actually, the first studies with emotional cues and priming were always done uh, mostly with audio. So we have a very strong connection between our emotions and audio input. Um, such as when you didn't hear something for a long time, 
and then you hear it, you're, you're directly catapulted into the memory of something combined with the emotional, which is not so much true for the visual. So you have a lot of opportunity there to tap into, you know, our emotional system and memory system, which is, you know, highly rewarding. So um, there's actually a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah, yeah can, I, can I say also, that go, go for it, John. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah can, I, can I say that um, you both created the classic both and rather than an either or. So what you're both saying is absolutely true and in no way mutually exclusive or contradictory. And I, I think if you parse it out is into uh, what Carl was talking about with human machine interaction through voice, um, everything he said applies. If you talk about human to human interaction with voice, uh, everything Katarina apply, said applies. And if you think about it, in, in, in the old uh, meme of ontology recapitulates phylogeny, um, voice emerged uh, long before text. And so our brain is profoundly wired around voice first. And where this is going to play out, in, in, in my view, in the long run, is that as fake news and the epistemic disruption continues to gain speed, trust is going to be uh, at a higher premium than is information or knowledge. And so to the extent that human-to-human -human interaction relies from deep genetic wiring and deep, deep um, brain anatomy and processing, uh, as trust becomes more of an imperative, human-to-human -human voice uh, connectivity, like Clubhouse, is going to resume um, its historical role in the phylogeny. And the reason I, I brought up ontogeny is because in a previous discussion on this topic in this room, uh, someone was pointing out the truth that, uh, you know, voice um, is really our, you know, earliest deep kind of sustained connection with other human beings. So it's not just in evolutionary biology, but it's in um, how we mature as individuals. And so as the metaverse distorts, uh, and it will absolutely distort the relative priorities of the different sensory modalities and teach us even new sensory modalities, a la David Eagleman's work at Stanford, um, we're going to see an increasing reliance on mechanisms of establishing trust. And as we all know in this community on tech news, the trust we have for each other on the stage and in this clubhouse is far greater because of its voice. If we had done this full duplex text, um, it wouldn't have achieved anywhere near this. If we had video, video does its own distortions. And so there is something really unique about human to human interaction that Katarina is pointing out vis-a-vis -vis emotions and trust. Um, and yet what Carl was saying about the throughput um, of information in other sensory modalities is absolutely true as well. Sorry, I, I didn't, I'm really I, not just speaking about voice because all the research we do in animals is with specific tones. And um, also it's studied with music and all kinds of, you know, especially with music, there's a lot of love, abundance of study how, you know, when you hear a song or just a specific melody, how you come completely in that emotional state. And so it doesn't have to be human interaction at all. I'm not entirely sure if I misspoke, but my comment wasn't that um, vision is the only important sense. My comment 
was supposed to be, maybe I misspoke, my comment was supposed to be that it's the way that we gather the most information, the fastest. And that's still true, irrelevant of any emotional ties that audio may have. Um, smell also has a very important role in directing, um, connecting directly to memory. That doesn't change my initial comment, which I was interrupted in making, which was that vision is still the primary way that we gather the most information, the fastest. It's, it's the way that our brain is the most, it, it's the sense through which we are the most optimal at passing at high speed. So it's never going to be replaced by voice. Um, the other two aspects of this um, are that voice isn't necessarily private. It's not as private as vision. So there we had an instance where Tyler posited earlier that you could be walking around and that you're assistant, which is what we're really talking about here. And what Amazon is really driving towards is perfecting the assistant, not the voice aspect of it, I think, um, is that, you know, it says, hey, do you want to do this thing? You know, you're in this place, whatever. Do you want to do this? Well, that that's actually broadcasting the way that that's broadcasting private information about your habits out into a public space. For instance, if I have a friend over, I don't necessarily want them to know that when I'm in a certain place and time, a certain thing is triggered and happens. And that's the problem with voice. I mean, obviously, if we've got earpieces in, great. But if then if I want to control it with my voice, again, the thing that I want it to do is no longer private. I'm saying it out loud for anyone to hear. And I might potentially be in a very crowded space where I don't want you know, my assistant to, to, to know, I don't want everybody to know what I'm commanding my assistant to do. So there's some, there's some real issues there that will take a very, very long time to work out, which I think will, will hold voice back. Like it won't replace vision, visual, the visual systems that we have in place now to access and consume data and to do complex tasks. It won't replace the screen. It just won't because of these problems. And I think Amazon knows that. I don't think that what they're trying to do, the reason why they subsidize the dot and basically don't really make a profit on it is because they need the information about people's lives so they can perfect the personal assistant. I don't think it's because they truly believe that the audio assistant is the best way to integrate with a person or anything like that. It's like we throw this thing out there that we can we can get this information of people's lives, of what they do, of when. We give them a couple of gimmicky things to do, like start podcast and start audio and ask, you know, for the next ingredient, maybe that sort of thing. But, you know, the original thing that you put on here, Tyler, was... Um, was that they're finding that the screen equipped ones were more popular and being used right. more. And that's, we can posit as much as we want in this room and wax lyrical about the beauty of the voice, but the numbers are literally supporting what I'm saying here. It's the fact that voice is brilliant and it's very good for a small subset of things, but the screen is not going to disappear. And, and voice is going to be an augmentation um, to the tech going forward, including AR glasses, but it is by no way near going to be the primary means of consuming information or interacting with the device because it's just not fast enough. It's not private enough. It's not secure enough. I'm just, I'm going to bring up the point that I brought up again about the stickiness. Um, we were talking about stickiness and I wanted to make the point the, um, that by using tone, you have a way better way to directly tap into your emotional reward system compared to visual imaging. That was the first, how we communicated and how we um, made a whole um, population or group of people being in the same state of mind, such as war and so on, because music came before, or tone that came before uh, language. Um, language is an abstraction of that. So I, will, I just don't think it, the audio is at that stage, right? Yeah, there's, there's a... But we actually... 
there's a distinction to be made there, though, which is if you consider art a form of communication, then visual preceded verbal. We actually communicated by acting things out for millions of years before we had complex language. So back about, um, yeah, millions of years ago, we were saying, you know, um, last night the the... the the gorilla was chasing me and I ran away. We were, we were telling all kinds of complex stories around the fire fireside, uh, you know, just by acting them out. So people call it mimetic, the mimetic stage. I mean, it's, it's very simple. Light travels faster than sound. You can comprehend light faster than you can comprehend sound. You still have to, you can see things and it'll. But the processing of it, sorry, Annette, I don't know if you finished that, you, you muted I just want to give you the opportunity. Processing um, sound is faster. It's the fastest that we have in the brain. Like if you hear a loud sound and you get scared, that's the fastest processing you can do in your no. brain. It, it, indeed, absolutely. But, but but key here, key here is the ability to filter. So if you put if you put five pieces of art in front of me, my brain can choose which to which to look at. My eyes will process each one individually, and I will not be overloaded. You could put a million in front of me, and I'm not going to be overloaded. If you play five pieces of Mozart over the top of one another at the same time, it's going to be uncomfortable for me. Exactly. You just said a word that is phenomenal, and everyone is making incredibly valid points, but the concept of overload is really important when we look forward, again, 10 or 15 years, I think the question is, what role does voice interfacing play within the compute overlay of the world and in what form factor and in what context? So if we're in the futuristic automobile, to what degree has the user habit been moved forward and habitualized to use voice to pull up a podcast or, or radio. That's not gimmicky. That's a profound user behavioral shift because it's been easier. In your wearable on your on your face, will you interface with a bunch of taps from your finger or your thumb? Or will it be easier in a situations to say, where am I going? What do I need? Call Bob, blah, blah, blah. It's a multimodal world that we're heading towards based off of an enormous complex shift of NLU technologies. And there have been winters and fits and starts for AI and voice AI. And I'm speaking with 10 years of experience in voice AI, having built one of the most um, uh, advanced independent voice assistants. So I, I love the whole conversation. Let's keep it going because it's phenomenal. Um, but I introduced the concept of modi-modal because we're not talking about a discretized right or wrong. May I ask who was just talking? Because great was points, but in Twitter, tea. yeah. Thank you. I think <clears throat> that we're living in a visual culture, and that's an easy statement to make. But let's look at brain uh, research, and it is a fact that we live in a visual culture because our brains are making more space for visual uh, uh, information processing, and what's uh, giving away uh, that is smell. So just by simple facts, we are a visual culture, uh, and I agree with all the points being made about that a picture says more than a thousand words. Uh, that's uh, like uh, just some a phrase that we're used to, but it's actually also a scientific fact. So I'm sure that the visual uh, world is going to be a huge uh, impact on how we're doing. It's going to be a huge part of uh, the whole uh, metaverse because 
It is very simple that sounds uh, and every other senses can indicate uh, danger and uh, other things in your surroundings. But the most convincing way, way of um, of tricking your brain, hacking your brain into assuming that what you're seeing, even that you might know it's not reality, your brain will interpret what you see as reality. You will emotionally and cognitively uh, react to uh, visual information as if it is reality to a much larger extent than any other of your senses. That is why the visual part is so important. Uh, Susie from uh, Denmark, thank you. Also I, I not true. I'm sorry, there's so much research. If you're consciously aware of your visual stimuli more, then you will think that that's what culture primarily entails. But I think that the other senses have a, a stronger connection to your, your more subconscious awareness. And in that way, they're easier to trick and easier to bypass. And so they could actually have more influence, not only that you're aware of, but more influence because you, you can manipulate, you can, you can consciously process things you're aware of. If you're not even aware of it, then it can have this kind of sly back through backdoor influence on your behavior and you can't actually sort of think it through because you're not it's not being consciously processed yeah that's an I excellent point and I, I agree completely just to finish it off of can i just finish off please input i know but this is like really we are discussing something that was researched for decades now and is established and there's false information going on right now here so i hope before people talk that they inform themselves better. There's decades of research showing that, for example, the gustatory input is a way stronger input to make emotional and long-term memories and so on. So please read up about it. Visual, it's just way easier to tap into, but your other inputs are stronger than, than to create long-term memory and to prime them to emotion. Gustatory and the sound input is way stronger. That's why we need Neuralink. Go directly into the brain. Hook it up. Yeah, whoever was, whoever got cut right. off, could you finish okay. your point? Yeah. So the, the research being done in um, mental health, uh, the biggest achievement at the moment that I'm aware of, uh, I might not be aware of everything, but they're actually being made uh, by using visuals, especially uh, virtual reality, uh, that can affect people's mental health uh, in quite extraordinary ways. And also for people who have lost uh, their ability, for example, to move your arm, if you put a couple of VR glasses on, you in the VR reality, uh, let them see an arm moving up when they move their own arm up and then expand the movement to moving up 10 centimeters instead of the two that you can do yourself. It actually hacks your brain so that you will move your hands up five centimeters. That means three centimeters more than you are physically able to in any other way. And this is something that they are researching in a new rehabilitation centers right now. So I hope that it's true that other senses is also making a great impact in the long term and memory and everything else. But there are some excellent uh, story, case stories in the visual uh, impact and how we can trick the brain in that. But I do agree that we should base everything we discuss here on facts. Thank you very much for making that point. Susie from Denmark and over and out. Okay, Susie. So let's go to, we're going to circle back to this issue 
shortly because uh, Elon Musk made a comment on Twitter uh, or in an interview that, um, you know, that the metaverse is trash and that basically Neuralink, what he's working on is going to be so much better. And to put that into some context, the metaverse, as many hardcore geeks like ourselves, many of us on stage, uh, perceive it as the next platform following the smartphone, which pre, which followed the the desktop. So we went desktop PC era to smartphone era. We're going into the metaverse era. They all roughly last a decade. And then the question is, which what will come after the metaverse era? And it's likely to be brain computer interface, um, which is what Elon Musk is already saying. We should just jump right to it. Let's skip the whole metaverse era go right to brain-computer interface era, and he's claiming that by next year we'll be doing human implants uh, with his company Neuralink. And there are people who do have humans with brain-computer interface uh, links already happening, and they're doing some rather impressive stuff with it. And there's a lot of brain mapping happening to make that brain-computer interface more functional. Specifically, there's a lot of MRI scans of the brain while using VR to trigger the parts of the brain that are responsible for fear of heights. And then they, you know, put somebody in a VR headset who's experiencing fear of heights. And then they use the MRI machine to locate that part of the brain. And they're going to trigger other visuals and experiences through VR, let people have the MRI headset, you know, uh, scanning on. And um, perhaps quickly map out the brain. Uh, and that's the interesting question is how quickly can they map the brain and then match those parts of the brain to the right hardware to combine with your wetware to enable this brain-computer interface feature, which should come after the metaverse. Although we'll see. Technology seems to be accelerating uh, asymptotically. So we'll, we will see. Anyways. Um, the Tyler. Yes. Can I just kind of dovetail a really interesting flash of news that came across my my desk over uh -huh. here? You're going to really love this one. Just caught off the presses. Consultants are entering the metaverse literally. Sand tokens are up on the news of PwC Hong Kong acquiring a plot of land in the sandbox. And I've been talking about this quite a lot because I'm a consultant. And I've been talking about the fact that the metaverse is going to become really powerful for people to actually deliver their products and services. And MetaCommerce, we're doing a leapfrog, Tyler, where I think we're, I think the social commerce you spoke about about three to six months ago mm. is going to become MetaCommerce. And that social commerce is going to display itself in the metaverse. And clearly by what you're seeing here, that they literally bought land. This is just going to be really, really phenomenal when you start seeing how they're how they're going into these spaces. And I think this is what's going to be super, super fascinating when you see how fast these companies are going to start buying up land in some of these metaverses and basically sandboxes and Amoka. And I'm quite curious to see what are going to be the other metaverses that are going to come down that brands and companies are going to start aligning themselves with to offer their products and services with from within. I love the marketing angle, but I mean, I mean, you're, you're an actual consultant. You deliver what uh, your SAP solutions and real yeah. 
technical implementation. I mean, isn't the metaverse kind of a gimmick when it comes to getting real work done and having real client discussions and doing um, it? Actually, wait, wait. Actually, also, can we ask? Can we back actually, up a bit no. Actually, let me metaverse? answer that question, Evan, because the question was posed towards me. Evan, for the twenty years I've been doing SAP consulting, I do get what you're saying, but delivering it in a new paradigm is also going to be something that's going to have to be addressed because we are under these very unique uncertain conditions of work and even now it's being a challenge to have conversations of delivering against projects from the perspective of that companies are also wanting to access their own aspect of the metaverse for their businesses. So when you look at my uh, the clients that I would look at for SAP, they're Fortune 100 companies and PwC, Accenture, Deloitte, IBM, GBS, Capgemini, they all have consultancies, world, consultancies worldwide that we already work remotely delivering products for people. And I really don't believe that it matters if it's metaverse or not, but it is something that allows more of the branding to make people realize that we're not afraid to step into the space I, of new technology. I love it. The, the, I, art, I the article yesterday by Gates. You know, give me an experience. Point me to it. I'll jump in today. You or Dr. Fran. But everyone so far, Horizons or, you know, any of these these environments, what makes me want to pull my hair out after 30 minutes of the idea of working 12 hours on a project in them, just but you know. Also, I, Evan, to your point, there and to, Amy hasn't addressed this. It's not quote land in the in the metaverse, right? So there's a lot of hype going on around this. They're buying digital space or however you want to define that, and they're different metaverses, right? So you've got a lot of hype where people are are saying they're in it like Nike and the, the big you know fashion brands that makes sense because you, you can buy a token that represents that that brand that you can tie to real world but we're not going to be working in a metaverse I mean it's it, they're not fine yet the announcement yesterday that Microsoft is working in collaboration with Meta on linking teams into the metaverse, I think is a major shot across the bow um, of exactly uh, what was just asserted that um, social commerce consulting in the metaverse is likely to move faster than one might otherwise expect. Social commerce, totally, John. I get it. Selling, you know, gaming, marketing, enjoying having fun, doing tech news all makes sense. But as far as getting real work done, the kind of work that you do and May does and I do, I just show me the environment. I'd love to see it. And I hope it yeah. doesn't give me the cold sweats after. Hey, you know, hey, Evan, I, hey, you just thought of a very give the real world. Evan just yeah. thought of a very, very valid statement because my specialty in the context of SAP for the past um, going on eight years is FMS retail. So basically fashion management solution and retail is my stream of business inside the SAP solution. That's my most recent one of eight years. And as an expert in the fashion industry, because I studied it and that's what I grew up in. And that commerce component, Evan, is massive. And I also do speculate that 2022, as SAP has so many FMS clients, Nike being one of them, Chanel being another, Kieran Group in Paris being another, VF in Switzerland, um, Richemont, Cartier, uh, Rolex, you name it. All of these organizations that are in the fashion space, my prediction and speculation is that 2022 is going to be the floodgates of the fashion and the retail space of high luxury brands 
racing into this space, like knocking people over like a Macy's sale at Christmas. Because great, great. from a fashion perspective, fashion perhaps, but you've mentioned like global tech companies. I can tell you for certain Accenture, uh, Deloitte, all all the other bigwigs, we're not going to the metaverse. Actually, guys. Suzanne, I actually disagree with you because uh, I literally just had two interviews with Deloitte and Accenture in Netherlands with their digital great. division. Great. Yeah, so when you Suzanne and I both work at the big consulting firms as well. <laughs> me, so we, we if, both. If, work if, at if you hated multiple. Zoom, you're really going to love the metaverse. But I, I mean, I I think it is <laughs> it is a lot of hype because. Look, Boeing said they're going to be designing airplanes in the metaverse. Look, everyone is just jumping on board. And to to be fair, I mean, that would be a great use case given the supply chain at Boeing. But I they have Jennifer very sophisticated. It, Kevin. They I have think, sophi- I think yeah. Jennifer stated it very correctly and eloquently. And I have to give flowers to Jennifer because Jennifer is clearly seeing the strategic component that many of these agencies will at some point have to pivot and become more agile. And as they're also making very, you know, very sharp uh, HR elements in the United States, where the United States may be making some very, very strong, stern choices, their counterparts in their certain countries in Europe and the EU are actually opening up smaller, more satellite offices, specifically still under the Deloitte and the Accenture and the IBM GBS umbrellas, where they have digital agencies now and they're building them heavy in certain parts of Europe, London, Amsterdam, Berlin. They okay, are I didn't, moving I didn't say in that, that but, direction. Okay, go on. I didn't say that, but okay, go on. No, no, I was saying about how you saw land, which meant they're making a presence in a virtual space. They're not actually doing the work in there. They're making a presence in the actual space, which is what any organization would do if they want to stay with the times and remain from a corporate branding strategy that they could stay on point. Because if not, they can very well lose business. Because Evan, to your point, if there is sales to be made, they're also going to have conversations in there. And you're right. The same way people do deals on a golf course is the same way people do deals in like um, a smoking club or something. So the metaverse is going to end up being one of those locations where there is that possibility that they may meet up or whatever. And then maybe something comes of it and a deal is made, but it doesn't mean that they're going to work in there. Yeah. yeah, No, as a a space, as as a, so that's like an add on to a zoom. So the, the, the smoking room, the golf course, and a room in a metaverse. And plenty of companies are already doing that and creating workspaces. And the way the met- I, I don't know a lot about metaverses, but it sounds like you could do the engineering there and work more hands-on there. I think Evan brought up a great point that it's not comfortable currently, physically, and that it's worse than Zoom. But it doesn't mean everyone's moving to the metaverse. And there are a lot of different uses. As you're talking about... I- Fashion, fashion is hype. Fashion is that feeling. It's that um, self, you know, how does it make you feel? And so owning NFTs of of Nike or Gucci in the metaverse is going to be a gateway drug. You can't afford your Gucci purse, but you can buy a Gucci NFT. Yeah, Jennifer, let me, let me read the quote. Let me read the quote from the partner at Hong Kong PwC. And this is just for my consultant geeks in the audience. Quote, unquote, we will leverage our expertise to advise clients who wish to embrace the metaverse on the full range of challenges presented by this emerging global digital phenomenon. William Gee said. different than working in the metaverse. Yeah, so, so (laughs) it's far different than what you're trying to say. Digital, the fact that- Well, how would someone know what I'm trying to say? I was actually just talking about exactly what that statement was. And as a person who's- Yes, but you said other things that- 
So Evan, you're spot on, spot on. And may the fact that, you know, Accenture and Deloitte and whomever else is, is interviewing you for the digital world, that's not the same as the metaverse, sweetheart. So like well, back I guess to reality. Just, you know, then, you know what? <laughs> so, it's, it's, you know, hey, everyone, you know, it's I'm Christmas. Come on. Let's this keep, isn't uh, even about let's, being let's right or wrong be or nice. being on the stage of being expertise. <laughs> I'm just sharing an article. And you know what? I think this is a space where you start to see the navigation of, I heard that, Tyler. I love you. This How is where you start to see the, the navigation of like perceptions of reality and what certain things <laughs> are just show me that it's like it's like the old joke. Show me the money. It's like show me the space. Yeah, show me the but I also like to see some. Yeah, but there's hype. The there's a lot of money behind things that aren't real, right? So there's a lot of, and I agree. It's Christmas, so let's all like this is this is a fabulous room because we can all bring up different points like this and different um, perspectives, which I, which is why we all, I think we all love this room, and it's um, and we question each other and push back. Metaverse will be there, same as NFTs are exploding right now, and the value is in the eye of the beholder, right? So if I buy an NFT, I've got a board ape, right, or a derivative board ape. I like it. So that's that's the value. I like it. Um, there's many different uses, and the metaverse is growing, and it's going to be a space where people can interact or where they can show their goods. There's a lot of different, I mean, there's a, it's a growing area. Will I, I, I don't know that it'll be the next, you know, 3.0 that, um, as Tyler referenced, I think phones are here for a long time. I think phones and audio are here. But anyways, it, it is something that's growing. It has use and it has use to the beholders. Um, Evan brought up a great one. A lot of companies are doing um, meetings that way. And if they can be more interactive and build that way. Um, I know, it, you know certain things. I just want a torso. Every every metaverse I've seen, I don't you mean get a legs. torso. Can I please? No, get it's a... legs, right? Isn't it legs? Isn't no? Is it... Some some have a head. Some have a torso. Some no legs. Some with legs. I, I just, just have want to a body. Do the fencing. I want to do the fencing in the workouts. That's what I want. May I? Speak? I just I just if I, if I may interject for a second. Um, as Doctor engineer... Fran, Doctor Fran, open no, the mic no, first. No, no, you can't. Let, okay. let, okay. Data, data, oh, let, let Doctor Fran go first. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hi, JT. Francis. I think you're over on Twitter. Hello, buddy. Um, I, uh, I, this is just my opinion, but I really think that a lot of this is FOMO and that, you know, companies are saying, Hey, you know, Nike's in the metaverse. Why don't we get into the metaverse? We better get into the metaverse. This, it, it, the metaverse isn't ready for prime time, uh, you know, and I'm someone who is in the met when I'm not here in, in tech news, I'm Absolutely. in the metaverse. That was my point. Um, so it's not, you know, you can do a ton of things that you cannot run a business in the metaverse right now, today, 10 years from now. Absolutely. But we're not ready for prime time yet. Um, Dr. Fran on the clubhouse side and I'm done. Take it away, JT. Well, or data because data is, um, data works with mobile. Yeah, it was data. She thought it was JT. Go ahead, data. Sure. No problem. Um, I can say, um, that's that's no problem. Thank you. Uh, I can say confidently, I, I, I use the metaverse uh, daily, and I do get paid quite a bit of money um, working in the metaverse. Uh, I do have a full-time job working at a crypto company, but um, I am a consultant um, uh, in security and mobile security, and, and I'm a hardware engineer and inventor, and I send my clients um, prototypes through uh, augmented reality. And this is a real thing that people pay me money for. Uh, there's a lot of engineers like myself. They get paid quite a bit of money, and it's been going on for for years. It just so happens that uh, you know we, we have these buzz phrases and buzzwords more uh, recently. Um, but uh, we've been using augmented reality for quite some time, and it is a part of our um, 
you know, skill set that we have to actually know in order to communicate with the clients effectively all over the world. So we'll send them a file, and uh, an, an augmented reality file, and they can either use it on their phone, just kind of like how you can use it in Amazon. You know, you can actually view the chair in your in your space through your phone, or you can put on your uh, VR headset, and uh, and then you can view the the um, uh, hardware piece. And in, in, in my case, you know, um, you know more you know focused uh, detail, but it is something that's actually been happening for quite some time. Uh, you know, I don't know about the other industries and, 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 you know, why they've taken so long to actually catch on to this, but it, as an engineer, this has been happening quite for some time. I just wanted well, to share that, that with everyone. Process, that, that's also it's... digital goods. That's also, wait, Dana, let me ask this. Is that technology that can be shown in prototype that way versus like a Nike shoe or a hard product? I mean, or maybe you show a prototype of that. I'm right. Not... Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so these, these, so you can, you can do you know the same with 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 um well if you you can create anything in augmented reality really um if you're creating it digitally uh you know well, which pretty much every product is made digitally first and then uh you know translated into you know the real world um this this is this can go, go to anything right um and uh but but it's real i mean this is this is how you know we share you know even just last week i, I sent a, another prototype to a client i mean this is this is how we communicate there's and you know this is this is what we do. So I'm willing to answer any questions if anyone has any. By the way, yeah, and this is this is the, the designer well. workflow is using a 3D CAD software or like or a desk or something like that, and showing right. it to the client regardless of anything else. It's just that it's easier and more fun to show a building to scale in an AR rather or VR more so than anything else. Well, we have, right. So right, they can place they can place the hardware you know where it needs to be. You know, on the device, you know, for me particularly, mobile and IoT is what I work with, right? So they can place it, or they can actually see what, how it would fit. You know, if, say it's a case or something of that sort, um, even, then they could see how it fits. Yeah, you. I just want to add even the workflow with Audi and even Rolls Royce when they're making their cars and prototyping the California office of Audi, I believe, and the German office both communicate VR, VR. So it's just yes. part of the digital workflow. So when you Correct. have like mobile offices in Cali and then in London, well, never really in London, but Germany and China or Shanghai, you can all see the same file and work in the same file with like any other products like Slack or something. Right. It's been going on for quite some time. I mean, Rolls-Royce even has the, their, um, their, um, app their their digital app where you can actually log in if you're the employee and actually see and, and view your meetings in that sense and then you can comment on it um you know so this this is this is something that has happening so um i know it may seem strange that that you know people are moving to this you know more quickly but but um they, everyone's kind of behind yeah it's natural workflow for the no, but David, that's what i think we were describing earlier was that I, that's kind of what i was trying to get at earlier if, if i'm hearing you which is that um it's like a zoom on steroids right so it's a meeting room where you can go together and because it's a metaverse and you can show people 3d image you know however the metaverse and the virtual reality works so it is it's a new workspace which is what i was getting 100 jennifer it's, yeah yeah, it, it, yeah. A couple other key words here is how does it the the, the, the I, I I'll reassert the idea of a killer app, which is a very specific use case that solves a problem, a very compelling problem. And in 
the the production of, of of things, you know, 3D models and sending 3D models and sharing 3D models, that whole paradigm is being disrupted by the the means to socially, you know, all of the things you're describing, data with regards to being productive as a team, visualizing, you know, like immersive 3D models together. So the uh, like the manufacturing processes, the supply chain, when you have when you can do training and you can actually um, like the uh, automotive companies are doing or just p- people that are doing massive, uh, you know, uh, process, uh, uh, process uh, automation, things like that, when you can actually dive in collectively, that's something that hasn't been able to to actually be done really very easily at all. So if somebody had said Boeing and things like that, those types of um, specific, you know, advances for, for social productivity and innovation, that, that is, those are some, those are some of the initial apps that will start to leave the docks. Um, so it's, it is exciting. There will be some that that are starting to leave the docks soon and others will later and some won't at all. Absolutely. I think we're definitely in the middle of this paradigm shift, as most of us know. Um, but I'm surprised nobody mentioned mixed reality, which is the next step on top of uh, augmented reality. Pretty much. As uh, it goes, it goes virtual reality, right, where it's all the virtual world and augmented reality, where it's the virtual world combined with the real world. But then mixed reality is where you can actually interact with the virtual items, kind of like holograms almost. I mean, you look at big tech companies like Microsoft making HoloLens. I believe they're on HoloLens 3. Big, big uh, companies have already been using this technology to, uh, you know, accelerate their business plans. and, and Mostly virtual products. So it's Mostly already happening. Once you get to consumer that's- standpoint, that's when it's really going to explode. Yeah, and 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 it's a uh, it's it's you know as some people were saying as well, putting putting their footprint in digital world to, as of today and marketing themselves is a good strategic move. Moving in now, even if you can't work together, is a good strategic move. Um, so I mean, we're just seeing it like you know a lot. Some other people said so we're, we are seeing FOMO, but it's for a good reason. We are just scratching the surface right now. And uh, the people in this room today are going to be, you know, the future pioneers, you know, of this. If we keep, uh, you know, uh, just informing ourselves, educating ourselves and keep finding ways to dominate the space. And, um, you know, I I say all this just because of the fact um, I'm working on a huge project for next year. The beta is coming out for the first quarter. Uh, It's actually an entire metaverse as well, built on the Unreal Engine. Uh, we're we're looking to you know connect universities to entertainment to uh, you know museums for NFT marketplaces. I mean, it's it's going to be huge. That's as much as I can say. Um, but you know, it's this is this is very real, and you guys are all in the right place uh, to really be able to not be left behind. Com- like companies like uh, like tax companies around the world when Uber came around, um, you know, in order to not be obsolete, you're in the right place. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank you, Ivan. This is JT on the Twitter Spaces side. I just wanted to quickly say, um, just to, I guess, summarize, the, the metaverse really only works well when you're t- talking about experiences, uh, productivity, entertainment, commerce, gaming, and meetings, pretty much. Everything else, there's a way to get into it, but it's probably not going to have the, as high a level of, I guess, value or return 
as the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, I do want to make a point to what Dr. Fran said about the, the brands uh, really going through the phase of fear of missing out here. Because some of these brands that are entering the metaverse and some of the platforms that I see them entering, whether it's crypto voxels or Decentraland or even Roblox, most of these brands would have never entered these spaces a long time ago, especially, and I work with uh, some of the most top brands in global brands and consumer on the consumer side, and they're very protective of their brands. And to have their logos being plastered on some of these non-aligned, elemented worlds, um, yeah, it just really doesn't go hand in hand. And they're pretty much there for the audience, the eyeballs, and really, as Dr. Friend said, there's this fear of missing out. And, and we're going to start to see even more events. Once Nike got in there, we saw sort of the traction starting to, you know, begin. Now we see Under Armour recently dropped their NFTs. Adidas partnered with the Board Apes. And one of the biggest problems of the brands getting into all of this space is that now, not only are they going to flood the market, but they're going to create all these different uh, products and experiences that only the rich and um, filthy can pretty much um, buy out because some of these NFTs are like, well, the Adidas one was like 800 bucks, I believe. Like, what average person has 800 bucks to just spend on, you know, whatever um, unlockables they had connected to that? Most people don't. The ones that are going to purchase these NFTs are going to be the whales, and they're just going to flip it on, on OpenSea for whatever, $5,000. So the strategies that these brands are creating to enter the metaverse, they're really, really bad because they're really targeting people that are not even part of their actual um, marketing strategy. They're, they're literally creating NFTs just for wanting to get into the space and testing you know, the waters and seeing where they can go from there. But they're not really expand their market the way Nike's doing in Roblox or uh, the NFL is doing in Roblox. Pretty much everyone's going into Roblox or, or Fortnite. Um, but just to make uh, a quick statement, the metaverse does not exist. So let's just stop um, conf confusing the terms. All of these are just virtual worlds or virtual spaces. Uh, they're, they're non metaverses in their own in their own rights yes absolutely finally somebody has said the really important thing which is the fact that the word metaverse itself has become so insanely conflated with so many different technologies where you're throwing in crypto in with blockchain in with vr in with mr in with digital presence and whatnot i mean the word metaverse is of meta I'm given to understand is from sort of Greek or ancient Greek, and it's like after or replacement. Like it's literally the word itself, if you take it by its literal meaning, is after the universe, after reality, a replacement of reality. And we're certainly nowhere near there yet. We're not quite at the point where all of the digital replaces all of the, the the reality of the human. You still need to go out. You still need to go shopping. You still need to go to the loo. <laughs> like, so this the the word metaverse it. has been weaponized. In, 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 and I'm somebody who really loves VR. Like, I play around with VR development, and I've got several VR headsets. I love it. I love the concept of it. But but to throw that in with metaverse and say that um, that is the meaning of, of the word metaverse, it's like this socially created 
amazing viral branding that now uh, somebody used the word weaponized earlier. I think that's a perfect word to use. Like we've created this amazing branding that now all of these corporations and platform creators and developers can tag on products and SaaS products and services onto it and, and ride that amazing bandwagon to VC investment and to, and to, um, and to really, really fast, powerful financial exits. But it, it's not what it's going to be eventually, because eventually it will, it will calm yeah. down and it will be an addition to everything. Like VR will be an addition to our lives and, and the audio aspect will be an addition to our lives and crypto and blockchain will be an addition to our lives. But at the moment, there's this fervent sort of almost religious zealot um, belief that any of these very buzzy words right now will be the replacement for things, as in crypto will replace all fiat immediately, and blockchain will replace all um, um, centralized apps immediately, and VR will replace all of the way that we interact with each other digitally immediately. And it's, that's just that's just not the case. What we need to find is this dial it back a bit and find this healthy medium where it's used as a tool, not as a replacement. Yeah, honestly, I believe and understand it's more so the evolution of developers. So you're going to have blockchain developer that knows how to do make a crypto or make an NFT versus some charismatic CEO saying that we're making NFTs now, which is just like a 3D product that is poorly made. It doesn't really have very good textures. It doesn't have a level of detail that can work in, let's say, um the best video game that's out recently let's just say fortnite right and the digital and the gamers laugh at it and then the cinema people like guffaw at it right and it's never really this um shiny product it's much like um <clears throat> i work a little bit in the fashion industry and it's much like sustainability everybody wants to be sustainable everybody wants to be circular and people in these conversations say the word bottleneck and, you know, um, supply chain. And they just throw it all around trying to get get to understand it. But in reality, there's so much difficulty to what they're speaking about. And it seems so easy, but it's never really that easy. Okay, so let's pause there. A final note is that from the New York Times, a headline that Andrew Bosworth, known as Boz at Facebook, now known as Meta, it's coming in as the new CTO in the, after the new year and to fill in for the CTO who departed. And he, in an internal, uh, you know, memo with uh, his team at Meta, and he's responsible for all things VR and Metaverse at Meta, by the way. So in his internal memo, he says that... Um, what does it say here? That they're going to have deep, deep compatibility with blockchain and predicts uh, profound impacts on our industry over the next decade. So we'll depart for momentarily. No doubt we'll come back to it as we always do and get back into the other uh, top headlines at the moment, which is uh, shifting gears for a second to China. As not a day goes by that China doesn't come up in tech news. And today it's in the news for the same reason that it was yesterday, although there's a new update. Yesterday, the big headline was that Intel, the big American chip maker, had made a statement uh, telling suppliers in China to avoid uh, uh, labor from the Xinjiang region due to the labor camps. 
And when we discussed that yesterday, again, there's a new update today that I'm going to reveal in a second. But just to recap for the folks who didn't join us yesterday, I made the point that Intel knows that by making that statement, they're going to receive massive blowback, huge, crazy big. And indeed, they have. And that's part of the headline today, although not the interesting part. Hold, the, hold your breath. So I said yesterday that Intel making the statement is going to rock the boat, cause huge waves, going to anger the CCP, anger Xi Jinping, cause the, cost them billions of dollars. So they are not doing that willingly. Somebody's forcing them to do that. Do you guys remember me saying this exactly 24 hours ago? Yes, you do. Yes, yes. Good. Thank you, baby. <laughs> so, uh, 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 Tyler, I, I didn't like to say it's not a public announcement. Actually, it's Intel's um, email or you can say letter to their uh, supplier. Uh, supplier. So right. not a public uh, right. record. It, right. They did an internal memo to their suppliers saying avoid, um, you know, labor from the Xinjiang region because of the, you know, Uyghur labor camps. Again, they don't want to send out that message. Somebody forced them to send out that message because they know that's going to get leaked. They know what happens next because it already happened to H&M, where H&M essentially did the same thing. And H&M essentially got banned from China. Intel knows that's what's on the horizon if for doing this. They're not, they have no benefit. There's no benefit to doing it. There's tons of downside to doing it. Hence, they're not going to do it unless they have to, which they did. And that was my point yesterday, that America forced them to do this for geopolitical reasons, because they want to remove Intel from doing business in China. So the headline today from Bloomberg is that Intel is now apologizing to China following the massive backlash after telling their Chinese suppliers to avoid Xinjiang labor, saying it only did so to ensure compliance with U.S. law. Tyler, that's what I was going to say. And that's that's you're, you're on point with that. But every big company, every company, but especially a company like Intel, has in their contracts with their suppliers provisions that um, prohibit their suppliers from doing business in places that use slavery, blah, blah, blah. There's like 50 pages of this stuff. So so U.S. flag came down to them and said, well, look, we're going to enforce this stuff. If you don't like communicate to your suppliers, we're actually, I mean, you know, these contracts, anti-bribery, anti-everything, those terms are in every contract. It's very rare that you'll see somebody actually follow through and enforce those. So that's, as you're noting, what what came, what's pushing this. And then it's it's got to be U.S. government, as you said, coming in and saying, we're, we're going to call you on those provisions. We're going to make you enforce them. Okay. Yeah, but as a shareholder, I get really tired of some of these CEOs sticking their fucking foot in their mouth. I wish they, somebody needs to train these people. Yeah, follow the rules, but sometimes you, it's better not to say certain things in public if you don't have to, and enforce your policies the way you enforce your policies. But they kill me with this stuff. Anyway, my so, two cents, Robert. Here's, here's, no, this is government coming in and saying, we've nudged you enough times. We're gonna, we need you to pay attention. And again, having sat in rooms with government who said to, the, to us as tech companies, 
you are not getting the hint. So we're going to come in a little stronger. We're going to say that your joint ventures are no longer allowed. They're now considered exports and they're going to be regulated differently. And they're going to come in because tech is not They're They're like, you guys aren't getting our hints. This is, we're trying to do it through diplomacy, but now we're going to come down with regulations. We're going to start enforcing them. So it's not that the CEO is sticking his foot in his mouth. It's just that this isn't some, some uh, internal limited to Intel move as Tyler's describing. This is, you got to read between the lines and behind it. So check this out. I, I am. I'm just saying, follow the regulation, but know how to. There's certain things you say in public, and certain things you don't have to, and you still follow the regulations. Trust me, I was in there. No, they're they're being told, as Tyler said, they're being told to make this statement, knowing full well it will get out there again. Government doesn't want to come and say to all the companies, "Do not do this." Like we don't want to say that publicly as a government. We we're trying to again with diplomacy backgrounds, as Tyler says, this is our way, the government's way of saying it. They're they're leaning on the companies and saying. You do it. Right. So, and it gets them in hot water as they know that it will. And then the interesting bit is apologies in Asia are a big deal. Anyone who lives there knows what I'm talking about with the morning bow, uh, traditional bow on Japanese morning TV. Um, and Intel, so here's from Associated Press. Intel's request was arrogant, quote unquote, arrogant and vicious, says Global Times, a newspaper published by the ruling party, the CCP. The reference to Xinjiang in a letter to suppliers was aimed at complying with U.S. regulations, Intel said on its social media account. Washington has barred imports of goods from Xinjiang over complaints of mass detentions of uh, forced abortions and forced labor, which Beijing denies. Tensions over Xinjiang is rising as activists call for boycott of February's Winter Olympics in Beijing, a prestige project for the ruling party. The White House says the United States won't send dignitaries Beijing on Wednesday, barred four members of the U.S. government religious freedom panel from China in retaliation for sanctions imposed by the Washington on two Xinjiang leaders. Quote, so-called forced labor and other allegations on Xinjiang are completely are completely lies concocted by anti-Chinese anti forces, said a foreign ministry spokesman from uh, Zhao Lijiang. He called on Intel to respect facts and tell right from wrong. Some commenters online were comments the ruling party doesn't want and deleted by censors called for a boycott on Intel products. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, is what exactly was this blowback in China? Do we believe your ordinary Chinese uh, restaurant owner gives one flying shit about any of this? No, generally not. So what is this blowback exactly? How was it orchestrated? And forcing Intel to apologize. So watch the interesting Kabuki theater at play here. So Intel processor chips are used in smartphones, computers, and products. The letter caused, quote, concerns among our cherished Chinese partners, which we deeply regret, said an Intel statement. Quote, we apologize for the trouble caused to our respected Chinese customers, partners, and, and the public. Other companies, including retailer H&M and shoe brand Nike, have been targeted for criticism and calls for boycotts after expressing concerns about Xinjiang, as I said before, as the article says. Now, here's what gets interesting, because I'm going to read a little. Uh, there was a tweet from the Global Times, which is, again, the CCP's official newspaper, and it says, on the tweet that uh, in Intel on Thursday apologized for its Xinjiang boycott that sparked deep anger in China. Uh, whether the firm is off the hook remains to be seen, the paper says. But there's a lesson to be learned that foreign firms can't try to offend the Chinese market and expect no pushback. That's the CCP saying that. Now, 
there's a tweet also from a, a gentleman named Andreas Fulda, who is the senior fellow at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute and author of the book called The Struggle for Democracy in Mainland China, where his tweet says that the framing of this whole scenario implies that the backlash against Intel in China is organic and bottom-up, that Chinese social media users are pushing back or whatever. He says, I would assume that much of this is non-organic and, in fact, orchestrated by the CCP itself, which I, I think BB would agree with this. I think people in the region generally would agree with that, that, in fact, this quote-unquote blowback, pushback that forced Intel to apologize was actually or a bit orchestrated. Definitely orchestrated. <laughs> Again, that's what people in the region will say. So uh, it's an interesting, again, double kabuki theater going on on both sides. This is the interest, uh, you know, you can make a Netflix series out of the intricacies of the dual kabuki theater going on here from both sides. So if, if anytime Hu Xijing, the Global Times um, you know, editor, anytime he tweeted and that's some signs of this, uh, propaganda or any orchestrated event. Okay, so the next article that I have is about Shopify. How Shopify is becoming an e-commerce giant to battle Amazon. Two million merchants run stores as its market cap rose from 46 billion uh, last year to 174 billion today. Did you hear that sound? Did somebody hear a sound? I heard a little I heard a little sound. Did somebody hear that? That's the sound of my investment in Shopify, which you probably did too if you joined us during the Shopify live stream event or it was Google live stream event where they announced their partnering with Shopify to bring e-commerce to YouTube, just like TikTok and Snapchat and every, the whole entire social media landscape is all doing simultaneously. And the real sneaky, I'll summarize this article for you from Brad Stone from Bloomberg, who used to be at the New York Times, that basically they figured out a really clever way to get your Uncle Bob and Aunt Susie and Mom and Pop and Uncle and Aunt and Susie and Cousin Joey to get their flower shop, fish uh, rod shop and everything else online. And Tyler? Yes. Did you know that Shopify set up a beta program for NFTs to sell yeah. NFTs. Yeah, you, I saw your tweet. So, shared it yeah, they're getting so clearly, you know, they're they're getting everyone. So that cash register sound, you could keep on playing that. I know. It's, you there, could keep on playing that a lot. We can keep playing it because there's still a billion more shops to go. And Shopify is addressing everybody who ever wanted to ever put anything on, on, on an e-commerce site on the internet to do so. And Amazon notably is not. It is not easy for you to sell your stuff on Amazon, and that's partly by design. Shopify is addressing everybody who was left out of the Amazon gold rush, and it turns out there's more people who are left out than included, and that's why Amazon uh, Shopify might eventually surpass Amazon, uh, although they'd have to build up the whole logistics side and all that, although they could partner with the, all the last-mile autonomous deliveries, and we'll see how that all plays out. Nonetheless, you're right. There's still going to be, just like it took Amazon years and even a decade plus to grow into, you know, the retail behemoth that it is, you know, e-commerce, it's going to take a decade plus for shop and maybe even more. It'll take even longer for Shopify to get every Aunt Bobby and Aunt Susie onto their platform. So, Tyler, this is yes. Robert. Yes, um, Robert. 
what I like about what Shopify is doing here, and yes, I'm, you know, not that I have much money, but uh, I'm a shareholder too, so it's sort of biased. But being in the industry for years, what I like about what they're doing is if they position themselves right, um, messaging, a lot of small retailers or manufacturers like them uh, because they know right now that Shopify is not going to knock them off. And Amazon has a really mm. bad image mm. for people who have something that sells great Juicy. and then they try and knock it off and build their own private label. So Juicy. Shopify angles it right. They, they can build up a nice loyalty here. I, I'm with you. I like that point. Great point. Okay. So um, the next article. Sorry, I... oh, yes, go ahead. I, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, it's going to be interesting going forward seeing how Shopify handle this in the next couple of years because they're, they're really the space that they're inhabiting now is because Amazon screwed up really badly, right? They originally enabled, they came in as an enabler and they're like, hey, you little guy, we've got this store, we've got this platform, you know, the internet's hard, but we're going to enable you to do online sales. So just come over here and sell your stuff through us. And they started all sorts of shady practices, manipulating the search results, doing things like locking um, locking stores in so they have to sell them at a certain price in the contract. They have to sell them at a certain price on the Amazon store. They weren't allowed to sell them cheaper elsewhere. And now recently it's turned out that Amazon are actually doing their own products to replace other people, you know, top sellers from independent sellers and whatnot and other companies. So they've kind of screwed up. Shopify is in that position right now, um, to me at least, where they again, it's this, it's this empowerment. This is this is the trend at the moment, right? Like empowering people with the metaverse, empowering people with, with blockchain and crypto. Like it's going to be interesting to see if they can hold on to that, if they can continue to innovate and they can continue to grow without losing their their core message and going the same way that Amazon has gone, unfortunately. Yeah. So the next article that I have is from Forbes. It's about Airbnb's co-founder, Nate, uh, the CTO at, at Airbnb. And according to the Forbes article, is often tasked with the company's trickiest projects. And as somebody who knows a lot about Airbnb, I can tell you in summary, I did read the article and I can summarize it for you, that basically he's been very busy um, building tools for cities. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. What I mean is Airbnb knows that like Uber, it struggles with getting cities to like it. And if the city, there's many cities who didn't like it and shut it down. And there's many cities who were okay with it and they let it happen. And then they figured out, wait a minute, what we can do is build a dashboard and tools for city managers to see how much taxes we can collect on their behalf automagically and enter it into their bank accounts to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a quarter. <laughs> and then it turns out magically, they all of a sudden, they love this Airbnb thing. Because Airbnb can force the hosts to uh, com comply uh, on a tax basis, extract the taxes automatically, send them exactly over to the correct bank accounts on the city's behalf, and show the city a dashboard of all of the hosts on a map, how much each of them is paying, how many there are, and down in doing so, create a beautiful interface that you know sings a very beautiful song that they like to hear, knowing what the city is looking for and wanting to avoid. And they craft that in a beautiful way to downplay their fears and uh, boost their uh, internal incentives, let's call it. So it's genius and it's working and it's getting cities to like Airbnb, but they had to build all of these tools in the back end for these city managers who now like it. And uh, you can imagine the likes of, it's a really 
interesting lesson for these disruptive apps to learn, like Uber and others, and potentially these uh, drone companies and vertical takeoff and landing vehicles and everything else. You got to include these cities who can regulate you out of existence into the game and build them the tools they need to help manage it and show that it's in their interests and everything else. So in that sense, it's quite uh, interesting. Well, so, That's how I have a question. Doesn't that change the terms and conditions that people, the people who are putting their, uh, their homes up there yeah, as yeah. far as all that data? So have they agreed to it or is it something that, you know, they're just going to do it and ask for forgiveness later? What happens is Airbnb says you have until, uh, they just sent out a huge memo to everybody saying you have until December 1st to show all of your tax stuff, register yourself in a very bulletproof tax uh, scenario. And if you don't, we're going to be keeping 30% of your earnings. So that was, was a very strong incentive to, for everybody to comply. And this is the power of them being in the gatekeeping situation, right? They've capitalized enough of the market. Like, what are people going to do? Are they really going to pull yeah. their properties from Airbnb? No, of course they're not. They're going to comply. They have to. Well, this is time for somebody to create an alternative, just like how there was, you know, the Uber and the Lyfts and the DDs and stuff like that, because forcing people to submit this information when they, you know, went into it with whatever idea they had in mind necessarily isn't like, it's not going to garner the type of trust relationship that you want. So I could see somebody creating something or there could be a mass exodus. They'll just deal with it now, but something's gonna happen. Okay, next up is from CNBC. Labor group is seeking to organize workers at four Amazon warehouses in Staten Island as they refile their union petition with the National Labor Relations Board after withdrawing it Last month in November, a group of Amazon warehouse workers on Staten Island filed a request for a union vote. The National Labor Relations Board confirmed Wednesday. And so far for 2021, Amazon is kind of like five and oh, may, might even be somewhere around seven, eight, nine and oh against these unions. They've managed to dodge the bullet every time thus far. And how will 2022 look? Well, it's anybody's guess, but I think. Given their record, Amazon seems to have some interesting uh, tricks up their sleeve that seem to be consistent and difficult to overcome for these union organizers. Uh, there's a sister article to that headline, which says that Amazon warehouse workers in Oregon say they saw a spike in COVID-19 cases this fall after the company started rolling back pandemic safety protocols. And then the entire next new topic is from Bloomberg. They say they have sources, that means somebody's leaking, that Lena Khan, the new chairman of the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan is advancing an FTC investigation into Amazon Web Services, that's Amazon's cloud, starting in 2019, including whether AWS discriminates against non-exclusive clients. The US Federal Trade Commission uh, uh, is pushing forward against antitrust scrutiny on Amazon's cloud computing business, according to people familiar with the matter. And it's a Bloomberg article, so it's paywalled. So give me. Sorry, I mean, Tyler, I laugh at that because, uh, of course, you, you're exclusive for a reason. Otherwise, there would be no exclusivity, right? No, no, no. So, exclusive. If when they say exclusive. If they are not allowing you to do hybrid cloud architectures, if that's the case, 
then that is a big, that should be a really big alarm. Okay, um, thanks, David. Yeah, well, no, but, I, but I don't know. I, I, I can't read the article. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just I, it's more of asking a question. I've got it right here, and Cheryl will likely pin it. Uh, I'll pin it to the top of the clubhouse room, and Cheryl can pin it to the top of the Twitter space. And for those who don't know, uh, we're in both apps simultaneously. Uh, where we're, there's about 300 people in Clubhouse and a, uh, maybe, I don't know, less than 100 in the Twitter space. And we've in this article, it says that FTC investigators have conducted or contacted companies in the past few months to gather information about competition issues related to Amazon Web Services, said the people who declined to be named because they weren't authorized to speak publicly about the outreach. At least one of the contacts was was as recent as the past few weeks, said one of the people. Uh, the focus on Amazon's $16 billion cloud business, which brings in most of the e-commerce giant's profit, comes as Lena Khan, chair of the FTC, has set her sights on conduct by the biggest U.S. tech companies. Khan, a former Columbia Law School professor, rose to prominence, blah, blah, blah. Amazon fell 1% in New York after Bloomberg reported the news. Well, there you go, Bloomberg. You did. There's your, there's your damage. There. I thought that's going to be a really... Really tough case to prove. I mean, that's the most competitive, dynamic market in tech is cloud, cloud hyperscaler yeah. competition. So, yeah, good luck with I that. I tell you, the only way they could have been denied it depends on what type of business that they were doing, and you know, because there's certain things that you just don't want to have, you know, in the cloud. So maybe it's because of the type of the business and the type of data that so they were using. It says one issue the FTC could look at is whether Amazon has an incentive to discriminate against software companies that sell their products to clients of AWS, while at the same time competing with Amazon. The fear is that Amazon could punish the companies that work with other cloud providers and favor those that it works with exclusively. Well, but they don't have a, they don't have a strong enough position in the cloud race to do that. Like currently... According to this article, it says AWS dominates the market for uh, cloud computing technology. Amazon holds 41% of the cloud computing market, followed by Microsoft at 20%, but that was for 2020. And I happen to know from the last four quarter reports that M Microsoft Azure Cloud is gaining market share, so it's probably 2239. And then you have Google, which has another 20%. So you have... The problem, the problem is regulating tech when it moves so fast. If you had said this five years ago when Amazon had like 80% market share, they might have had a good argument, but right. the, the market has moved on so quickly. Correct. Good point. In a market, though, where there's so much... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, just because I have to deal with us, I wonder, because I've had it, I've seen it where people will buy space on AWS and then go back and sell it to other people. There's stuff like that too, like they have them. So it's like uh, double charging, you know, like the, the company buys space and then some other company, they go and they sell that space to someone else. But isn't that just so a reseller or, you know, tier two distribution? Yeah, but yeah, do that. yeah you can host, you can do managed services on their cloud. I mean, that's reselling it. You're not just, yeah, but if you're people not know where they're being. Doing it. Yeah, if you're not saying you're doing it though. Yeah, you are. No, that's, that's totally permissible. I mean, where do you think your stuff's hosted? So. Okay, next up. Uh, Amazon opened 153 U.S. facilities in quote-unquote opportunity zones created 
uh, by a 2017 law to access tax breaks whose impact is hard to measure. The company has located delivery stations, fulfillment centers, and even an air hub in regions that qualify for capital gains tax breaks under a 2017 law. Yeah. Hey, they're, they're kind of shrewd like that. So the next one is that Intel plans to open a R&D center in France, test an assembly factory in Italy, and a major wafer production fab in Germany. And the New York Times is reporting about a look at attempts by TikTok's biggest stars to expand onto other platforms, including Charlie D'Amelio's Hulu docuseries, often with mixed results. And I'm trying to recall, there was a really interesting um, other article about TikTok today, which is that TikTok surpassed Google for 2021 for most traffic. Did somebody tweeted That's that. My, my, my Twitter. Yeah, maybe uh, shared that, yeah. Uh, do you need the link? I send it to you again. Yeah, DM me the link, please. Okay. Hold on, that, hold on. Was that Twitter, t TikTok traffic surpassed all of Google search traffic? That's what the headline said. Mm -hmm. That's I insane. Think it was web, no, I think it was Twitter.com. I'm sorry, TikTok.com versus Google.com website visits. Okay, here we go. I don't think it was like search traffic. I'm sharing the article to the top of the clubhouse room. Cheryl can share it at the top of the Twitter space. And it says, TikTok was the internet's most visited site in 2021, even beating Google. New research shows video sharing app first topped the charts in February and has generally stayed number one since August, according to Cloudflare. The app known for its silly dancing videos was the world's most visited site on the internet in 2021. And the app owned by Beijing-based ByteDance has had a rapid rise, hooking people with its secretive algorithm, which delivers video clips that it thinks you will like. It has turned dancing influencers Addison Rae and Charlie D'Amelio into household names, getting cast on TV shows, commercials, and movies. Earlier this year, TikTok said it had more than 1 billion monthly users. There you go. There's an other article today that uh, brands are jumping all, all over themselves to get into a new TikTok ad network to address these billions of users because the content of these ads can be little cute, you know, little videos that look just like the videos that users are swiping on. So, for example, um, TikTok is all about endlessly kind of scrolling through these cute little 10, 20, 30 second videos. And now you can put your ad right in there to look just like any of the other videos because people don't know where these videos are coming from. And, you know, if you can design a cute little video that uh, reflects positively on your brand, the, the idea that it could be uh, very, very engaging, incredibly high engagement value, which can trans the question is, what will the click-through rate be? And there might not need to be a click-through rate. A lot of brands can now start to sell directly in TikTok without ever leaving TikTok. And that's where things are going to get bananas in 2022. So um, the next article, shall we, is, well, did we get through all the big ones? I think we did. Um, Yes, we've gone through, well, in a letter, 13 Democratic senators are asking Mark Zuckerberg why Facebook removed misinformation safeguards ahead of the January 6th, citing Francis Hoggins' leaked documents, to which he's going to reply, we didn't, she's mistaken. Uh, here, let me explain what actually happened, and then that will go away, as, as just following the history of those conversations. And 
essentially they were mis they've been misled and misinformed and he'll tell his side of the story and then they'll realize that so there i'm tempted to not mention that article we'll save it for next time india bans 20 youtube channels and two websites for alleged anti-india propaganda from pakistan involving its new IT acts emergency powers for the first time. So they're able to silence content that they don't like and YouTube is complying. That's very interesting. And Triller, does anyone know what Triller is? Triller is a US-based TikTok clone that is uh, no doubt eagerly hoping that TikTok gets banned, which it nearly did under Trump and or dealt with for lack of a better word. And so Triller agrees to merge with an ad tech company called Sea Change, taking the TikTok rival public at a five billion valuation. And uh, that's that news there. And then we're going to get into the tweets that everyone's been very patiently waiting for. And we've got a whole bunch of really good tweets, like this one from the New York Times. As I was saying, it says TikTok made them famous. Figuring out what's next is tough. So I'm going to pin that one to the top as. TikTok starts to monetize for its creators in a very big way. Here it comes. The And here it is. Brands are flocking to TikTok with dedicated ad campaigns attracted by its 1 billion users and its algorithm that can make an ad seem like just like any other video. And I will pin that to the top of the room. There it goes. There it is. So the next one is from Dr. Fran from Fast Company. It says, should I email, text, or call? Researchers have discovered the answer to an age-old question. If, some, if you need someone to help you with something, ask in person, says a new study from Cornell University. Meaning call. Okay, there's your answer. Number two, Jeff G. sends in this one from CNN, claiming they have an exclusive that, according to the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies, you know, the FBI, CIA, what have you, uh, according to satellite images, it now shows that Saudi Arabia is now building, actively manufacturing its own ballistic missiles with the help of China. And that's going to cause uh, the U.S. to, you know, kind of question its uh, allies uh, there. It, it's not going to, I don't think it'll do anything. I think it's... Mm -hmm. uh... mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They bought China. Uh, we, China buys a I lot of their oil, and we don't. <laughs> and they're our biggest, uh, you know, uh, customer for weapons. So we need to sell them more. So we'll keep doing that. And we say we think Xinjiang is bad. Come on. So next, Not Xinjiang, one, but uh, anyway, the next one is from CNN that. Putin blames the West for the growing tensions during end-of-year news conference. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said that the ball is in NATO's court when asked about increasing fears of a war in Ukraine during his annual press conference, saying that he's put, you know, 175,000 troops uh, on the border of Ukraine because uh, he worries that NATO is going to try and bring the Ukraine into NATO. And if you try and do that, he's going to storm in. And so that's why he's saying the ball's in NATO's court and NATO's saying we're not. That's, uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting stare down happening there on Ukraine. Ken sends in this one uh, that Triller's merging with Sea Change. I discovered that. Thank you, Ken. And Katerina sends in this one that Gut 
derived metabolites that play a role in neurodegeneration are now identified. Researchers have identified high levels of three gut-produced toxic metabolites in plasma and cerebrospinal fluid samples of patients with multiple sclerosis. Wouldn't that be the Christmas gift we're all been hoping for to end on 2021 with figuring out multiple sclerosis? That would be amazing if that article is true. I just retweeted her article to the Tech News Twitter account, just like I do all these articles I'm reading, like this one that plants are responding to more CO2 in the atmosphere by photosynthesizing more. And researchers led by Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and UC Berkeley used a new type of methodology that combines remote sensing, matching learning, and terrestrial biosphere models and found that plants are photosynthesizing more because of more CO2 in the atmosphere. And P.T. Yoder sends in this interesting article. It's a graph tracking COVID by in a really interesting way. By reading the reviews of the Yankee candle sales on Amazon by people claiming that these candles have no scent. And there's an interesting, if you plot all of those reviews claiming that the candles they purchased have no scent, you can now track COVID <laughs> in places where people are claiming that the candles they bought on Amazon don't have a smell. That's fascinating, Tyler, because those candles like stink. I mean, they're they're smelly. <laughs> I just can't. This is so funny. It, it's a really clever um, extension of what's been done for several years now, which is tracking the Google search trends to be able to get an idea of the spread of um, seasonal flu and that kind of thing. So this is this is very specific to the effects of COVID and very clever. Although most candles are sold in the fall and winter months, so when you know indoor respiratory viruses spread, so. Cold and flu and COVID, so yeah. it's hard, you know, if you look at the thread, it debunks a bit of that, uh, you know, correlation, but it's cool anyway. But what's true, the service response said, uh, you might got COVID. <laughs> no, no, that's just hilarious because, yeah, like complain. Yeah, someone pointed back. out tracking tracking the Google search trends. That is such a data, and there's there's been um, retroactive review of Google data showing that we could it could have been used much earlier in tracking COVID and other things. So Google search is actually a great data set. Yeah, I mean that's very that's specific. Yeah, um, is, is to... that a good thing or bad thing? <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry. That's right. So the next one, poo, just... poo in the wastewater is a better measure, but yeah. yeah. I just retweeted this next one. From yeah, but that's the wastewater for COVID is is a great idea. But I think it's a bigger comment, which is what Carl brought up or somebody, which is that you can use Google search trends to track different, you know, if it's it, you know, beyond COVID, a lot of different. So the uh, a robotic fish has been designed to terrorize invasive species uh, and it's working. Fear dealing robots, robotic fish that are intended to scare away. Um, it's the robotic fish is designed to look like a largemouth bass. Maybe the key to solving a century old quandary of scaring away these other um, fish uh, that are, you know, normally uh, the, the, the big. That's actually fish. an awesome. Yeah. 
That's awesome. In this case, because a lot of times the things that you introduce to get rid of the, you know, the invasive species cause their own problems. I know up in the, um, like up in the Finger Lakes in Canada, they have a huge problem with some kind of weird fish oyster thing that was introduced and they getting rid of it is taking decades. So something like this that doesn't cause its own issues could be, or additional issues, could be very interesting. All right. So the next one I just retweeted from PT Yoder. Is about a 10-year-old girl dies after trying a viral TikTok challenge. So we've got yet another death being attributed to TikTok. A 10-year-old girl from Pennsylvania has died after attempting the viral TikTok blackout challenge in her bedroom. Which And Tyler, you just read the the new the TikTok tie tight uh, headline from new new york times and uh, it's again like point out something interesting about tiktok not something dangerous about tiktok okay but um can't ignore me yes and the, uh while the new york times uh, attacks facebook and says it's it's you know it's harming our kids uh instagrams causing you know and yet the kids are dying literally on tiktok and they're silent about it uh, and the reason is because the New York Times uh, is competing economically with Facebook and Facebook's winning and stealing their advertising money. And now you know why. And TikTok is beating Facebook. And so if your your enemy's enemy is your friend is what's going on here. And that's why the New York Times and the likes are silent about the actual deaths, 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 dying children on TikTok. And it could not give a shit about it. And yet they want you to believe that Instagram and Facebook, where no kid has been since the fucking 90s, is the real problem with your kids. So, um, yeah, you, you, you need to own up to this, New York Times. Uh, you need to be transparent about why you're attacking Facebook. And you need to start reporting on the kids that are dying due to these TikTok challenges. And it's a, it's a real shame and disgrace that you are playing this crazy game. So the next article is from Libby. Can, can I jump in with one? Go ahead, Tyler. So this is recent from the Pandemic Prevention Institute, uh, a tweet about uh, uh, an FDA report from yesterday. They tested uh, two of the leading antigen tests with heat inactivated samples of Omicron, and they are confirmed to work with those samples. So that's Quide Binax now. Uh, and Quidel. So those have been confirmed to definitely work. There are no uh, reports that in separate things that I've looked into in the last uh, uh, day or two for a, a couple of people, there are no reports uh, substantiated with data of any of the antigen tests failing. There were three nucleic acid tests, that is PCR sorts of tests that uh, uh, detect the RNA. Um, Three, three were found by the FDA to not fail. Only two of those are marketed. They're none of the the, the common ones. And I, I tagged uh, Tech News on, on that, that tweet. I have that one coming up. Uh, if you oh, let me skip ahead to it. Give me two seconds. I've got about. Do we have a health news on Sunday again, or is it on uh, all of this uh, Sunday? I'm not sure. I, Cheryl should know. There it is. Be a good time. I'm, I'm tweeting Ellie's tweet. Yeah, I think I think Danish is planning on and holding it as of last Sunday. Yeah, great. So here's Ellie's tweet. I just retweeted to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW about new data from Imperial in the UK. It's fascinating. 
15 to 20% less likely, according to Imperial College UK, uh, 15 to 20% less likely to need hospital care with Omicron versus Delta. That's, that's absolutely fantastic news, by the way. And well, maybe, no, that's, maybe, that's only maybe, a, maybe a slight reduction. Right. But, but any if, reduction you know, if, is great news, yeah. Right. But if, it, if it's, uh, you know, if 10 times more people have it, then it, you know, the hospitals are still overrun yes. in the U.S. anyway. Yes. So, yeah. But you also have 10 times more people exposed, uh, which brings us uh, closer to the, you know, hopefully inevitable end to all of this madness. If you have had so. COVID before, 50 to 60 percent less likely. That's great. Well, more importantly, it's great that it's not an increase in need for hospital care. It's I agree. I agree. because it yeah, was going to be an ugly. It, it, it's it's going to be an ugly sixty days in the U.S. Anyway, yeah. what, what do you think, John or others? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, oh, oh yeah, it, it's, it's, yes. there's there, there there's no escaping it being ugly for the next month or so. It's just, and as you point out, eighty percent of three x four x is a big increase over prior so even though it causes less hospitalization the number of people who are still unvaccinated or not boosted um, who are going to end up in the hospital is probably going to substantially exceed our prior record in the u.s so the, the thing that everybody can do is wear high quality masks that's the only thing that's going to make this not horrible or not catastrophic okay amen yep next up is that visa partners with 60 crypto platforms to let consumers spend digital currency at 80 million merchants wow they don't want to be left out <laughs> well, they're trying to get anyone anyone know how this will work in practice so i'll just be able to use my visa card and you know as a crypto wallet or what's the deal here I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account. Evan, do us the favor and digest that. I can bring it. Visa is a very long-term partner of mine uh, and still is. So I could get them to come in and tell you, but that might bore us to tears if, to hear their version. So it might be quicker to read the article. Um, so and, and Tyler, before we permanently leave COVID for uh, today, yeah. um, people should be aware that if you think, you know, I'm fully vaxxed, I'm might as well get it over with this uh, less uh, lethal virus and be done with it. Um, the, the history of persistent immunity is challenged, number one. And number two, long COVID, long COVID, long COVID. There are going to be five times as many people with long COVID than there are people who die. And a separate point, um, there was a paper a few days ago, or a preprint a few days ago, um, autopsy data from people who'd had COVID and gotten over it that shows that it, it, it gets into the brain and it gets into other tissues in, in not everybody, but uh, enough people to be concerned about it. This might be part of the story on long COVID, maybe not the, the whole story, but if to the extent that that's true, there is a little bit of good news in that for the people with long COVID, it means that the antivirals could potentially be a treatment for them, but that remains to be seen. So there's a, a question a... for John. Go ahead. Um, oh. So John, we keep highlighting long COVID, right? But now we also know that vaccinated people with no symptom, they also have a chance of getting long COVID. So 
what would be the solution? Not Absolutely true. Um, masks, 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 distancing, common sense, getting, thinking that you're, you're getting persistent immunity with no consequence from getting infected with Omicron is, is faulty thinking. Um, it, it take this one as serious as the last and hopefully, um, this will provide immunity and, and really transform us into endemic, but we don't, we really don't know because as Ellie has pointed out in previous discussions, there's already significant variants of Omicron um, that have been detected that are antigenically different, which um, pose the same risk. So um, take it seriously. Okay. And, and under that common sense, you know, I, I was talking to a friend whose family was going to get together for Christmas and her relatives were, would not test just because that's how they are. And, you know, I convinced her to postpone observing Christmas, the Christmas dinner until after the Omicron wave is over. And anybody can do that. I, I just uh, recommend that with all my heart. We're still a little early on the data, too, aren't we? We're still, I mean, it, yes. nothing's, nothing's really conclusive yet. So the wisest path for those who are doing everything in their power to try to not get this, particularly the long COVID that's, that really we need to anchor on in terms of what the biggest risk is here for mo most of the people, is we, we're, still, we're still on a wait and see um, with regards to having the solid, solid. Only the earliest information is showing up. So I just wanted to... To, to make sure we recast that as, as the context. I just as want well. to share Thanks. something how we live life in Japan now. Um, we don't have many cases, right? And hospitalization rate is also low. We just carry on life as normal. There's no vaccine passport requirement for those people who are unvaccinated. All they do is everybody wear masks. That's all. Okay. And when you're in that situation, testing and tracing works. In the situation that we're in now, you can't go and see who was infected by the case that you have because there's just too many. But when prevalence is really no low, testing and tracing is really effective, and then those people isolate, and that stops it in its tracks. Yeah, we, we don't have the unhealthy, overweight, or they don't rather in Japan that we have in the U.S. So everyone points to countries like Japan or countries in Asia or even South Africa, to, and yet as you, as we've seen with you know 900,000 dead or more we react differently we're we're a unhealthy population we're overweight as a population and it hits us differently it's going to hit us differently so you know but, but policy I got to just mention, even if we were all young, fit and 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 healthy, uh, people would still just about no, not just about exactly about as many people or exactly as many people would still get it, get it infected. Uh, it, be, being healthy uh, doesn't stop the virus. Uh, we're, uh, yeah, I agree with everybody on stage, but aren't we preaching to the choir? Uh, this new normal. Uh, the populist movements that some of us are tracking in various countries, whether Eastern Europe or other places, uh, Central Europe and, uh, and also South America, be, be wary of what's going to come in the next half decade that's going to surface from this um, beyond the health component. Okay. So the next one is there's a few more COVID articles like this one that Pfizer's COVID pill authorized in the United States is the first authorized authorization of a drug that 
newly infected people can easily take at home to stay out of the hospital. And let's pray to God those are available to people who need them as uh, Omicron uh, ramps up. And Nigeria destroys more than 1 million expired COVID vaccines. Why would they do such a thing? Well, to, the move aims to reassure a wary public that the no, donated vaccines with a short shelf life were taken out of circulation once they were expired. And they don't want people thinking they're receiving expired vaccines, so they're destroying them very publicly. And China locks down Jian province, uh, home of 13 million residents who now must stay at home to avoid unnecessary outings as that's how you stop the spread of a virus, is by stopping people going in or out of an area, as we did in Thailand, and as Japan is doing. They're not letting anyone in. It works incredibly well, as nearly every island nation knows. Um, you must control it geographically, and so China's doing the right thing, as they should, and shutting down a city from anyone going in or out. That's how you stop it. It works every time. The Americas, the Americas is a giant island. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's because um, the uh, Winter Olympics is uh, very close. So um, Xi'an is uh, near Beijing. So they did very, very strict control on this time's uh, breakout. Not an outbreak yet, but uh, yeah, you know, China can be cautious. Yeah. Every they must be cautious. Hey, 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 Tyler, so yeah, go ahead, Ken. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was in my car, but when John and Eli are still on stage, I, I wanted to uh, ask a question. I didn't tweet this out because I didn't really consider it a tech story. It's not. It's a it's a health story, but um, I probably sent it to the health news. But um, apparently there's a story uh, that came out this morning that the World Health Organization is investigating some new disease in, in the Sudan. Um, and like, um, you know, and I, I, I don't have it in front of me. But it's 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 so far it's only impacted like maybe less than a hundred people. But it's not COVID. It's just something completely new. Okay. Yeah, yeah, can't can Yeah, really it's something called because of the fever or something. Yeah, it's a new disease that you claim, but there's no detailed on this as um, by by now. So. There is. But, it sounds yeah, like uh, December December two thousand nineteen. We heard about some strange new disease out of. Uh, China. This is really scary. Here, it says that the deaths have mostly been reported among elderly and children, ages That's one. How to it all starts. Ages one to fourteen. The symptoms of the mysterious illness include cough, diarrhea, fever, headache, chest pain, joint pain, loss of appetite, and body weakness. The WHO team that traveled there has since left, but did not communicate their findings to local officials. In a statement to ABC News, a spokesperson for WHO Africa said the agency began investigating the outbreak in November, but did not provide further details. There you go. So far, 100 people, um, 97 people have died of the unknown disease. Okay. It says possible the uh, because of mice, so it's the uh, hemorrhagic, so I, I'm, I'm not sure the word, fever, EHF. But uh, yeah, just like I said, no no further detail yet. Okay. Yeah, apparently the, one of the things in that article was that they have some sanitation issues and some, you know, and other things that maybe other countries don't have. But nonetheless, if, if, if it emanates from there 
and then it becomes transmissible, then it could be transmissible all over the globe. So, you know. Can, so, so too, uh, too, early, too early to comment. Yeah, likewise. The only the only thing that I've found is that they've ruled out cholera. Cholera is a problem elsewhere in Africa, but uh, apparently that's not this. Ken, you shared an LA Times article about uh, the the craziness of news and media. the The crisis of democracy is a media crisis. And the mainstream press is losing. I love the headline from the LA Times. Um, do you have a quick synopsis of this one? Uh, no, I only sent it to you because you've been focusing so much on on, on sure. this issue. It's not even really a tech issue; it's a media yeah. issue. So yeah. I, I, I mean, like literally, I'm not in a position to like synopsize it right now because I'm sitting in my car, I'm waiting on a line somewhere. So yeah, I'm just skimming it, and it seems to uh, kind of parrot the points that we've been making, which is it started with the right becoming entertainment and then the left jumped in and followed suit and doubled down. And now we've, we found ourselves. Hey, Tyler, what, 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 what was that from the LA times, by yes. the way? Yes. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you, because sometimes I, there's a lot of good stuff. We, we discussed it privately on the, on this information, which I don't have a subscription to, but sometimes you can just make out the headlines. I could like tweet you, you know, like the the top parts of it, and you should do. But the the information picks up things that no other, you know. So there there was a paper um, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on um, uh, just came out just a few days ago, algorithmic amplification of politics on Twitter. And they found that Twitter's algorithms um, definitely amplifies more right-wing politics than anything else. Any other politics. Okay, next up is... Uh, right, let me finish that one. The next one is from P.T. Yoder, that three students are now charged with felonies for promoting the bring-your-gun-to-school trend on TikTok. The trend led some schools to temporarily close last week. Yeah, but hey, <laughs> uh, not- How does, uh, when, when they say it's wow. a trend, does that mean it was trending on TikTok? And I mean, why isn't TikTok liable if they allow a trending topic like that to trend? I mean, it's their platform, they control the algorithm. It's all very confusing. Uh, yeah, you would well, think- it needs to be. You would think a journalist- well, would... No, I mean, the, the parents are one thing, but if it's trending, it's literally something under TikTok's control. They can decide what trends or not uh, right, so on, on their platform. Terrible. So just quickly on stop, this, stop before we go the, down. The questions there, Evan. No, before I we mean, go I, down. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Evan. I, I assume shot. TikTok people don't want, you know, children killed by guns as as, as much as the other thing. So I, I'm just wondering how responsible they feel or are for allowing a topic like that to trend. Anyway, I'm done. Okay, so Ken, Is it new cyber warfare. Ken shared a new one about uh, Tesla under investigation for allowing drivers to play video games. Yeah, we covered this a couple of days ago that they're going to start investigating if it's they should have that on or not. If the car is moving, should people should the driver be able to play video games in these quote unquote self driving cars? And the next article is from the Wall Street Journal via Poppy that Elon Musk says he lives in a fifty. This is an interesting one. 
So here's the headline from Wall Street Journal. Elon Musk says he lives in a $50,000 house. He doesn't talk about the Austin mansion. Now, this one got quite hot on the web in the past 24 hours. And it says, the world's richest man who said last year that he was selling physical possessions has been living in a billionaire's friend's estate and shopping for his own Texas palace. And then it goes into showing uh, the actual house in Austin where he's spending time. Now, I happen to know quite a bit about this because the friend of the house, the owner of the house in Austin that he's staying at is, until very recently, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Sweden, Ken Howery, who happens to be a very close friend of Elon Musk's and Peter Thiel's because he was a co-founder of PayPal. So Elon Musk is living down in Boca Chica at SpaceX uh, launch pad in a $50,000 house. That's true. He does go to Austin where he's building a gigafactory in Austin. So it's safe to say when he has time, he's spending his spare time up in Austin to watch the gigafactory because he's got to get those cyber trucks off the line because I ordered one. <laughs> so indeed, he's going bouncing between the launch pad at Boca Chica for SpaceX and Austin, Texas for the final stages of the assembly of the Gigafactory to do the Cybertruck. So the question is, he says he lives in Boca Chica where he's registered to vote. And then this guy who wrote this article for the Wall Street Journal uh, named Rob Copeland says, uh, hey, he's claimed he lives in a $50,000 house. He's lying. We found him living in Austin in this big house, Austin mansion, owned by somebody named Ken Howery, who turns out to be his co-founder at PayPal, and the American ambassador to Sweden, who's quite a, he's a billionaire himself, Ken is. And by the way, this is, Ken is the person who gave Elon uh, COVID, by the way, when Elon flew to Stockholm for Ken's birthday, and they shared a taxi together to the castle where they held the birthday party, by the way. Not that the journalist actually knows what he's talking about. But anyway, the the point is they showed an, a Google Maps aerial photo of the house, essentially doxing Elon Musk. So the question I have is, why? what was in the trash cans at the house? And why did you not stop? Why are you stopping at just doxing him by showing the Google Maps photo? Why didn't you go the full way and actually dig through the, the trash bins to find out what Elon's really doing. And should the Wall Street Journal be reporting on and revealing the residence of Elon Musk? And is he, does he actually have any point at all here? Again, this is Wall Street Journal, not BuzzFeed, right? I can understand BuzzFeed or the Huffington Post writing this. This is the Wall Street Journal claiming that Elon Musk says he lives in a $50,000 house. He doesn't talk about his, he doesn't talk about the Austin mansion. Yeah, well, maybe because he doesn't like weirdo crazy fuckers uh, storming his property, maybe. Uh, just a hunch, call it a hunch. 
But also on this, like their their counter argument of the point they're trying to make is no better than his. Putting aside anybody's personal feelings about Elon Musk, if he's saying, "Hey, I'm living here," and then on the side he's actually saying staying somewhere else, well, he's not specifying exactly what percentage of time he's spending at either place. That's what they're capitalizing on. They're capitalizing on the fact that he said something that made it sound like he's spending a hundred percent of his time at this fifty k residence on the SpaceX premises. But then they themselves are doing exactly the same. They're saying, oh, he goes over and stays here as well. Well, for how much of his time? For 20%? For 30%? For 40%? For 60%? What is the arbitrary amount of time that would make them not put out this article? As in, if he was spending 49% of his time in Austin, but 51% of his time on the SpaceX, w w would that then be mathematically he's spending most of his time at the 50K residence? It's this kind of like chokehold on the truth that they're, they're trying to use here. And, and you're right, Ty, like it's... it's it's saddening, it dis it's disheartening, it's, it's a bit pathetic, it's a bit sad, um, and it's, it's, it's a blatant attack of it against somebody who's divisive, but just they're not talking about the things that actually matter here. But he is, he is the richest man in the world, and so it does generate a fair amount of scrutiny when you have that kind of money for, for you know, good or, or bad. I mean, people are going to investigate everything he tweets, posts, or says, and this isn't your average Joe Blow. So. I'm a little sympathetic to someone like digging in a little bit in the trash for the richest guy in the world and shedding some light on his life. He's not just your average private citizen. So anyway, that's I, I don't know. This is this is uh, I don't understand like why why is this of any concern about where he's living, how much it is. I mean, it, it's not. It, it has nothing to do with anything that he's creating or the innovation. Like what 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 does that have to do with anything? I mean this is just because standard. he's rich, just because he just because he's rich doesn't mean that we as the public unless he's doing something nefarious or hiding his tax money or do you know doing something that's going to do the public harm. It it doesn't I mean we just he has he has his right to have some type of anonymity. Yeah. This is standard celebrity journalism like creeping into right. otherwise uh, more serious medias and uh, right. nothing to it than that. Precisely. Right, right. But, 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 but Elon does put himself though. out there in a way that others don't. I mean, he's very involved in the culture wars and in political discourse and on tax matters. So he's not like your average private citizen that just wants to be left alone. So he doesn't invite a lot of this, you know, investigation himself with the kind of things he puts out and it's fascinating i i actually enjoy you know learning more about his life but you know he invites some of this as well with his very controversial views on lots of different issues anyway thanks. i don't know doxing a person but, i think is a little I, too much like sharing where someone lives where they rest their heads where their kids are i mean we don't know if their kids are there so i mean because that's my realm security like i'm very protective of where I live and who I want. And I would not want, even though I'm not Elon, but you know, we, we, we don't need to know that, you know? Well, I just want to say that from the ethical standpoint, what you're saying is so right. And I, I, and I, I could, you know, agree with every word you've said, but then TMZ and similar web pages and media, uh, tabloid, you know, uh, journals would, wouldn't have work. So, I guess the nature of humans is that we are curious about what other people do, where they live. We compare ourselves to them, and mm -hmm. it's something that I guess I'll be like Tyler. They need to like yeah. do journalism. 
Exactly. The real exactly. Life. I agree, but Alan loves the attention. He he's a magnet for it. He's been on Saturday Night Live. He's created un, unlimited numbers of memes. And that's not an excuse for violating his privacy. Yeah, that's why I'm on that. He's a public figure. So the law is different from him. He's not a private citizen. He's a public figure. So by law, Uh, it's different. This is so interesting to me because the the, the fact, the words that we're using here is indicative of the real problem is that we're in a situation in society where not only are these kind of actions and these kind of articles um, and, and, you know, we're saying that it's, it's okay to, to take a person who's in public limelight and, and investigate them, but sometimes very deeply. Not only is that socially acceptable, but it's also clickable. Like, it's, it's, it's traffic generating. And I think that's the real, the real issue here. I mean, there's a difference between, inviting it, between engaging with social opinion and inviting yourself open to everybody's opinion and, in, in a way... That the Wall Street Journal's doing, but there's also a difference between that. There's two arguments here. Like one is one is that two trains of thought here that are like being smashed together. One is you know does Elon or anybody in his position deserve um, to be scrutinised like that? And the second one, which is unrelated but just as important, is should a place such as the Wall Street Journal be doing publications of this manner with this level of taste? And those two things are very separate. They are so, separate, but let me just jump in. He, he put himself out there. He's, he loves being a public figure. And if he's going to put things on Twitter, like, should I sell my stock or I pay taxes? He's, he's inviting this kind of review. I agree. Um, with, you know, I agree with both of your statements there, Carl. And, and, and it, as everyone's pointing out, this is like highly nuanced or a lot of different aspects. And, and I'll talk be right about back. what's going on in our society, in our society currently, right? With the, the non-information, false information, what we find interesting. I mean, who cares where he lives? But so, so but this is that... since Diana died. I mean, this is like this is not a new thing. I don't understand the discussion at all. Like yeah, I think monarchs of the UK and and actors, you know, they are all scrutinized all the time. They have all paparazzi all the time around them, and he turns himself into a public figure. So I really don't understand. And you know, we cannot uh, block uh, tell journalists what to talk about. We just can just not read it. That's the idea. But That's if, the if serious, not reading it. If if serious journalism were doing its job, we 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 might hear a little bit about this, but we'd be hearing much more about the fact that there was an Omicron super spreader event in his factory, the largest super spreader event in Thank a you. workplace. Yeah, I think you got an oxymoron going there with the serious in journalism. I mean, I think journalism is out the window these days. And so, as you're all pointing out, it's we have to be skeptical, very skeptical, um, Ellie, as you point out, in what we're reading. And it's it's disheartening. And I know that um, I, I don't think we've raised this in this room, but wasn't there didn't um, a lot of the big media, um, I think it was newspapers, got together and I don't know if it's like a petition amongst themselves, but to to try to foster better journalism because they're recognizing that it's just it's you know. Their industry is going out. Also, this is not a new thing again. If you look into the American Revolution, people didn't want to go against the UK, right? So the few people that make like a little bit of havoc or like chaos in Boston, they completely overblown it that a lot of people were killed, a lot of chaos uh, happened, which was not accurate at all. Like this has been always a tool like media. It's really nothing new, I think. Exactly. Thank you. It's, it's just on hyper. It's just well, on except that it's amplified now. It's actually much yeah, more dangerous. You, it's yeah. amplified. Yeah, it's overdrive. 
Yeah, so, that, that's the thing. We have different modes to deliver this information. It's one thing for it. It was siloed and it was just in the paper. And, you know, you had to subscribe to that paper to even get it. Remember your parents, I don't know how old everybody's in here. They used to subscribe to the Washington Post. I actually had to get up and go out and get the stuff. Now it's just hyper. It's on our phones. It's on our tablets. It's on the computers. It's on the TV. It's everywhere. So this, so it's, you know, so just because we did it in the past doesn't mean it, it's right now. I totally believe, yes, he made himself a public figure, but when it comes to your home, and your right to privacy. Everyone has that, no matter how much money they make. In the place where no, your well, children the, rest their the head. Really and I'm going to land my plane. I'm going to land my plane real fast. I'm going to land my plane. The In the place where your children rest, you're putting the safety of others in place. Not just Elon, but the safety of his family when you dock someone. And I will say, in the state of Maryland, and this is, that's illegal. Hold on. So Twitter has a new policy precisely against this of sharing of images of personal information. But that's even not the new one. The doxing is an old policy. They updated the, the doxing policy to include photographs. This article does include a photograph of the home. Should Twitter then ban any links to this article? Well, but here's a question though with Twitter, they, well, they didn't go after his family. They didn't go after his kids. So they didn't, they have not gone after his kids, which to your point would be a breach of, of that etiquette. And it might be a breach of state law in certain places, but we're, we're, we're combining or complaining well, we're a lot of issues here, which is the tech. Yeah. But he doesn't live in either of those homes. He's, he's not living with his five kids in a $50,000 home down in Florida. He's got, you know, mm -hmm. they've, but they've got, um, yeah. And, and he puts himself, but the difference is, is that, that what we're talking about is tech and, and what people click on and clickbait and the exponential reach right now and a lack of accountability. So back to your earlier point, when you had to go after this information, it was siloed. It didn't reach as quickly as fast. And we had a little bit more accountability, which we don't have now. And so it, it is, it's a different world. I mean, we can talk about it and try to look at it in historical, we, we need to understand history, but we also have to look at this in this growing paradigm and technology and socially. It, it, we have a lot of issues here, as you're pointing out. I wanted to make exactly. that point that the signal to noise ratio nowadays is way higher in part to the, the, the noise. Because back in time, you had like a couple of newspapers and a couple of news stations that everyone would watch when you had something going on on TV, like Kennedy was shot or, or, or the royals, um, you know, were marrying or like the news station in Germany, for example. Every single household in Germany would at 8 p.m. would have their kids to bed at 7.30. So every single grown-up would watch the um, news show at 8. And at 8.15, everyone watched on Sundays the, the crime um, uh, movies that were produced in Germany. Every single person. And nowadays, you don't have that anymore. You dilute the signal-to-noise ratio. So I would argue against that argument. Uh, I want yeah. to make two. Oh, no, go, go on, David. Point. Go on, David. Go ahead. I, I just want to just say just 15 seconds. Uh, celebrity, celebrity adultery, idolatry, idolatry, somebody help me with that. Idolatry is our, our cultural Ideology. cancer. Yeah. Idol, yeah, idolizing celebrity is one of the cancers on our culture, and the planet's on fire, and media is not doing their job. We, we, we don't even we don't even need to get into the details of what's happening in the celebrity lives. I agree that doxing should just be illegal and all that stuff. But we've got this is all distraction. This is all the irresponsibility of the media. And just, just 
the two very wait very back quick... to use of words though some of it's doxing and some of it's investigative journalism and some of it's you know something else and so again back back to those subjective lines yeah i think musk has tied himself intimately to the discussion on tax policy and what taxation should be for wealth and income and income inequalities so, so you mention it on articles about that whenever he comes up this is not like something that should be consuming so much bandwidth my yes, issue I, my, my, I, think, I think i think some people are missing sort of my main point is i have no problem with uh tmz doing this generally my problem is yeah. that it's the wall street fucking journal yeah. It, should, should the New York Times New York start, Times, start yes. doing articles like this? Is this what you want them to do? Responsible you know journalism. The journalists and Wall Street journalists have, uh, have already uh, reached objective. You have been discussing this for more than 20 minutes. <laughs> well, I, I think maybe what we should be discussing is whether the Wall Street Journal is a tabloid. Correct. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that is the question. That is there. You well, perfectly. Said, perfectly. Already said. a tabloid? <laughs> Oh, a bit sad. Okay, so the next article is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the tab, this amazing new tabloid called the Wall Street Journal, that Hong Kong University pulls down monument to Tiananmen Square massacre victims. The Hong Kong University, uh, the Pillar of Shame, is the name of the statue, was one of the most prominent monuments commemorating the victims of the Tiananmen Square massacre at Hong Kong University, and now it's being taken down in just the ever going step-by-step uh, -step process of dismantling free speech in Hong Kong. So the- and Erasing erasing history too. Yes. I mean, quite literally, it's not even just rewriting, it's Correct. it's erasing history. Correct. So the next one is from Amit Goldman, who's listening in the audience, uh, that Microsoft's massive new language AI is triple the size of uh, OpenAI's GPT-3. Uh, Megatron, so we will look forward to see the results of that. And Jeff G shares this one from CNN, that buy now, pay later is a huge hit with shoppers. Just how dangerous is it? It's super dangerous. Everyone's, you know, it's, this is the world's biggest problem, this buy now, pay later, right? Uh, Can I add to that quickly, Tyler? Just yep. A related tweet that I've just done. Monzo is a UK internet-only bank. Very, very good bank. Does some cool stuff. One of the features that they have, I don't know how many other internet banks have it, is that you can claim your wages early. So if you have a regular reoccurring income into your account on a specific day, say the 24th, then after a certain amount of pay-ins, you can actually start claiming that on the 23rd. And the money comes out of Monzo's pocket, and then, uh, and then when the funds are cleared, everything balances out. That's actually crashed this year um, since they brought it out because everybody is trying to claim their Christmas wages um, the days before. So this, is, this has happened in the last couple of hours. Their systems have just completely crashed and payments are being lost, and it's a bit of a mess. But, um, yeah, just tied in slightly with, with what you were saying there. So Jeff G just shared an article from CNN about... The tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan, uh, they use a three-year-old infant as the poster child, saying that this three-year-old appears to be like a newborn infant because it's so malnourished. This is the face of Afghanistan's hunger crisis. And it talks about Camilla, the three-year-old who weighs just 11 pounds. And Camilla has been malnourished for eight months now. And yeah, there's a a uh, uh, hunger crisis spreading across Afghanistan. But if you follow us regularly, you know that. And I just want to applaud CNN for raising the awareness about this 
what could be one of the biggest tragedies of this year, uh, which experts are predicting, if, or it's, it's been reported that the UN, Sweden, and Pakistan somewhat agree that we could see way more than a million, as high as 20 million people uh, perish this in the next few months due to the food and water shortages in Afghanistan now that the Pakistan, now that the Taliban has taken control and kind of mismanaged and not just mismanaged, but foreign aid is not coming in uh, because of the Taliban being in charge. So it's a real dire situation there. And again, I, I just, I wish, uh, it's just good to see CNN doing some decent coverage of that. So I just shared that one to the Tech News Twitter account. The next one's from Evan uh, from CNN that Harvard professor found guilty of lying about Chinese government ties. A Harvard University professor was convicted by a federal jury on Tuesday of lying to the United States about his involvement with China, the Chinese government. And it's about the Thousand Minds uh, campaign of Xi Jinping and the CCP to bring in the brightest minds of the world to China and, and incentivizing people to recruit other brilliant minds. And uh, this causes a conflict of interest with his role at Harvard, which he lied about. Now he's guilty. And by the way, this is you're going. This is going to be a huge series of dominoes underway. A lot of the top professors uh, at the top universities are on the CCP's bankroll and sharing lots of intellectual property. And it's a. It's a good, I encourage the journalists to dig further on this. The and, next, yeah, Chuck don't Lieber lie to the feds. Sorry? Chuck Lieber, Chuck, Chuck Lieber is like a serious scientist who we like. I, I know him going back to the mid 90s or know of him going back to the mid 90s, saw him at a conference. Uh, he's, he's a top flight researcher, and I just really wonder why he needed the money so badly. It, it just baffles well, me. It, it, it's not that taking the money was even illegal, right? It was just he had to do lying it. about it. Well, actually, no. So he was he had to disclose it, but he was also prohibited from taking it due to the terms of some grants that he'd had before before. Well, there, there's possible much more stories being you know under the table because it's possibly they set a trap so they might uh, so this professor might owe money or due to some kind of maybe gambling or they, maybe they know, you know how to get you it's no it's not even that they can get you they start you know it's this it's the typical behavioral engineering right they probably started him small small things but in addition and i don't know the backdrop here but if he's giving them ip it's also um export so giving them any yes. if, if it's a uh, or, or sorts of uh, yes or sorts of yeah you lost traps so two things on this just quickly. One, um, I wonder how much of this was a message, like using this individual and prosecuting right. as much as they can to send a message. And the second one is, it's Christmas and we're all kind of in this room as regulars, which is, is crazy. We should all you know, be doing other things. It would be really great if we could just stop talking over each other. It's, it's been very discordant this afternoon. Three more tweets. Here we go. Uh, breaking news. Florida reports 32,869 new coronavirus cases, an increase of 415% from last week. And so the Omicron, uh, Santa's brought it in uh, without the delay to Florida. And so yes, yesterday, L.A. County was at uh, 6,500, where, whereas the previous two days, it was close to 3,000. That's what, what's just, the, what's the, what's the doubling time, Eli? The, the doubling time is doubling, about sorry. two days. Two, day. two I, days. Two days. So yeah. Last time I checked, that would be the entire planet in another couple weeks, right? 
Well, it's in, it's in 40 days, in 40 days, you go, one person can lead to a million infected people. That's 20 doublings gets you from one to a million. How will that not lead to potential uh, collapse of the hospital systems in certain um, unvaccinated population, metro populations here in the States? The only way right. is if we all put on and, you know, KF94 or better masks and use them no. properly. No, I understand, but I'm just saying that's not the those are those mandates aren't even quote unquote allowed or or just you know I'm I'm just I'm just saying it's just pre it's still the 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 math still supports the idea that there's some dark storms that some areas here or most areas here in the states may uh, and not just states you know not when I say states I meant the U S it's um it's be careful happy holidays everybody yeah I, I, I think. Look, look at uh, the winter wave in Los Angeles when there were like eight hour lines of ambulances and hospitals and uh, businesses just had to be shut down for public safety. Well, one, one point will be interesting here is this will bring to light the uh, and potentially give us the opportunity to get the data around the debate around the effectiveness of masks. So we're going to be able to see Omicron spread around Asia versus non-Asia or masked places and non-masked places in a very efficient way. But so, Tyler, until now, we have that, 12, uh, 12 uh, you know, imported cases of Omicron, but still our quarantine rules proves that um, it, it works to prevent uh, the virus into our community. Until now, we still have zero domestic cases in the past week. So... I think, of course, mask is important, but the strategy here, the quarantine still works. Yeah. Yeah, Tyler, so that's, I'm not sure. What, I'm, I'm sorry, what, just we'll squeeze in here. I'm, what, what point were you making with the mask? I, did, I didn't follow that. Because, think because just, of the rapid doubling rate of Omicron, it'll give us a really interesting opportunity because it should cover the planet in 40 days. We will see in which places does it spread and uh, the doubling rate in different areas and if that correlates or with mask usage. And we've seen this before, and uh, Japan's the, the, you know, there there is very little Delta in Japan. Uh, they wear masks, and uh, we, 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 have, we have the answer. But uh, the problem in the U.S. is that the Democrats are really afraid of losing the midterms, and they're afraid that mask mandates and other such measures would, will, will definitely cost them that election. That's where we are. But and Japan also passed these quarantine rules right now as well. So it's not only the mask. You need oh, this um, to protect the border. I want to about yeah. Japan quarantine. Um, actually, Japan is not really that fixed on their quarantine. I mean, yeah, but uh, I think Japan changed change that for foreigners. Oh, on, for foreigners in the past. I'm just months, saying so. that uh, they are yeah. not so strict on their quarantine and contact tracing. So um, must really work. Well, BB is referring to quarantining people coming into the country until they they have had long enough to I definitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until they are clean, they are not allowed into the country. It's an illogical, it's a, it's an illogical argument because they have it. Same with Thailand has ten known cases, but what you're going to see is that the doubling rate in Thailand is nothing like two days because everyone's wearing masks. You're going to see the same thing in Japan, and this is finally going to give the very concrete data. That shows that masks are going to stop the spread, not stop the spread, but greatly reduce the doubling rate in places with masks versus places with without. Yeah. 
So during the Olympics, Tokyo Olympics, right, many people came in without proper quarantining and they even are not vaccinated. So that's when, well, the cases shut, shut up, right? But right. after they are gone, it came down. Correct, because everyone's wearing masks there. And then people, yes, the Omicron's really <laughs> going to highlight this in, in an even more obvious way. And but I can it's Japanese, I mean, Cheryl, Cheryl, you, if you are Japanese, if you are told, please uh, control yourself, don't go out if not necessary, Japanese will do that. So that, that's another factor <laughs> comparing <laughs> with the Western world. Yeah. Given, given the contagious factor of a micron, that wouldn't matter. Everyone's going to get it regardless. Yeah, yeah. I just say why the the Japan, uh, even without strict quarantine, the past of, um, maybe year, they still can decrease the positive cases. Same, same with Thailand, by the way. Long COVID for everyone. No one, no one, the Thailand isn't telling the Thais to stay home. But, but we have 10 cases yes. in Thailand. But it's not going to spread nearly as fast as it's going to spread everywhere else because we're wearing masks. And only because we're wearing masks. Yes. You can make up any crazy fucking thought that you have. You're dead wrong. It's really yes. simple. Don't get confused. Understand simple algebra. It's that okay, simple. Okay, you know what? Uh, my MacBook died, battery died, so I'm not on Clubhouse now. I'm in Twitter space. So I just want to say the quarantine... For, okay, the people are still traveling in Japan. They are just not open to foreigners with no residency here. So I can travel. Any Japanese can travel. They can go in and out. And... The, the, the 14 days quarantines or whatever number of days, it's not strict because I'm allowed to go and buy food even when I'm on quarantine. So that's why I'm trying to say the quarantine rules here compared to Singapore is totally not strict at all. But everybody is just wearing their mask. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's not it's not N95. They're just wearing any mask, even non-surgical mask. So just wear something. If everybody wear a mask, I think situation will get a lot better. And everyone might end up getting it in Tokyo and or Japan and in Thailand. The point is the doubling rate will be significantly slower. That's the point. Because and, and when the doubling rate is slower, there's a better chance that the medical correct. system won't be overwhelmed. And that's so the that, problem so that people, with this, right? Sorry. There's the clap. Like there's the clap we, did we did it. We figured it out. Well done everybody. Just going to say on, on Ellie's point that I cut off, I'm so sorry, dude. That's the problem, isn't it? Because then you're saying, well, you as a person are going to get it, and you have to wear this mask that you were moaning about, which, which is insane, by the way. Um, but it's an altruistic thing to do, isn't it? It's like you have to wear a mask to slow down the spread so you don't destroy the medical um, institutions of, of your region. But that's something that a lot of people... Have, de have demonstrated that they can't aspire to. They just they don't want to give up that simple personal freedom of listening to advice from on high um, for an altruistic um, purpose. Yeah, but we also confuse people. We tell them, wear this mask, don't wear this mask, wear this, wear that. There's a, there's a struggle with trust. And, you know, you got people doing some stuff and then they're criticized for wearing something. But if it's not the perfect mask, then you criticize them even more. And you got a whole wave of what the fuck people. So... You should be happy when somebody covers up. Don't beat them up. And then go out and conf uh, work with the ones that aren't covering up. But when you go after everybody, trying to get them perfect to where they, whatever mask that is, you're going to lose the ones that were committed also because you keep changing the message. Okay, next up, AI art powered by words. Um, 
this is the article it says the reality bending powers of ai have been kept increasingly busy over the past decade and now there's an app that allows you to create art with your words so you say what you want and it creates this art and it's really cool i just tweeted it uh, or just retweeted lavina's tweet so you can see it on the technics twitter account and last but not least are we ready here it is we did it from bb back to japan from reuters a Japanese professor creates a teletaste TV screen. The professor has developed the prototype lickable TV screen that can imitate food flavors. Another step towards creating a multi-sensory viewing experience. There you go. Yeah, love it. Tasty logo. Wow, that is so interesting. Lick your lick your screen, everybody. Go ahead. Why does the word? Why why does the word teledildonics pop into mind? Melovision. Look, I know Thanks, 3D Tyler. TV. I know 3D Tyler TV was a trend, but this is definitely not. This one's going to be the sticker. <laughs>